So if you have passion for what you do and you're willing to put a, put a plan together and be prepared and do what it takes, and then you have a strong amount of willpower and you're very persistent, then you're going to be successful in life. And that doesn't relate just to hockey, but, but that's the path that I chose in my life. And, and it's, it's worked so far. That was Nat Domicelli, two-time Memorial Cup champion, one-time World Junior Gold medalist, 267-game NHLer, an 18-year professional who is also currently the general manager of HC Lugano in the Swiss A-League. And you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padola. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hey there, and welcome back to the Up My Hockey Podcast, or welcome to the Up My Hockey Podcast with Jason Padolan, if you happen to be a first-time listener. Pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, we are going to go to somebody who is currently very relevant in the hockey world as the general manager of HC Lugano, that's Hockey Club Lugano in the Swiss A-League, Mr. Nat Domicelli. Uh, he was also uh, a player agent uh, between his time uh, from a professional player himself. He transitioned into the agency business, and then he's now in the management side of the game. And um, it's a very, very interesting conversation because he covers so many aspects of the game. Uh, we happen to be a day apart in age, so we uh, we grew up playing against each other in the WHL. Uh, unfortunately, he was playing with the Kamloops Blazers at the time for me because we butted heads a lot, and they usually won those battles, although we did play Kamloops quite tight. That was during their crazy run that Kamloops had of almost a decade long where uh, Nat was a part of two Memorial Cup championships uh, himself. He was a high-flying member of that team, scoring 50 goals one season and uh, and 59 another season. He uh, he grew up playing alongside uh, Jerome McGinley. Uh, it's interesting, actually, if you look on the Hockey DB, he actually had more goals and more points than Jerome. Granted, he was one year older, uh, but uh, but yeah, was was a was a very very pivotal point uh, part of that uh, Camelot's Blazer juggernaut that uh, that rolled through the the mid '90s there, and um, and just. I've covered that team a little bit on this show before, uh, just because it's almost like, how can't you? But if you you really need to look back on these teams uh, that Kamloops had during that era. You know, at the time, like I said, we were competitive from the Chiefs standpoint. It wasn't like, you know, they were runaways that they were just, you mean, untouchable. But when you look back on those teams now, and I did a little bit of searching there, like they had Jason Strudwick, Jerome McGinley, Nolan Baumgartner, Darcy Tucker, Shane Doan, Tyson Nash, Brad Lukowicz, Jason Holland. Like these are names. Some of them are, are I mean, there's some Hall of Famers in there. Uh, there's also some guys that are maybe lesser known. But we're talking roughly combined 6,000 games of NHL experience on a junior team over the course of Nat's four years there. Like, that's insanity. Um, you know, granted, Shane Doan and and, uh, and Jerome McGinley take up 1,500 games each. 
but you I mean Darcy Tucker almost a thousand games and Strudwick with uh, you know four hundred games and Lukowicz with seven hundred games and Nat with two hundred and fifty games like, and it adds up like it's obviously hard to play in the NHL and if you look back across. Um, any junior league for that matter, and find one or two guys from a team or an era that go on to play regular NHL minutes, like you're going to be doing well as a junior team to advance players uh, to, to that level is tough to do. And, and Kamloops was just doing it time after time. And this was on the heels of players graduating like Dave Shuzowski and Scott Niedemeyer and Rob Brown and um, uh, Greg Hoggood and, and players along that stature that were coming even before the likes of uh, Ginla and Doan. So it was just an absolute powerhouse there in the early 90s uh, to mid-90s. And we talk about Bob Brown, and that was somebody that uh, that recruited Nat, uh, who went undrafted in his, in, his, uh, in his Bantam draft year to still play as a 16-year-old and to still be a first-time All-Star and to still get drafted and, you know, all the rest of it that goes on with, with, uh, with Nat's career. But Nat had an amazing career. He, he, he talks about uh, his love of scoring goals, and that's totally uh, el- uh, uh, evident in, in, in his stats. If you look at his stats, he scored everywhere he went. Um, he even scored at the NHL level a little bit. Um, I'm sure he w- w- would have liked to, or I mean, who knows what the right way to put that is, but would have liked to have been a little bit more successful at the NHL in terms of goals. But um, 40 goal type stats at the AHL level, like I said, 50 goal score, almost a 60 goal score at the junior level. I mean, that's hard to do. It really is hard to do. And and, uh, and then he went on in, in, in Switzerland and, and was a goal scorer every single year he was there. So um, this guy could play. He could put the puck in the net. Uh, he was really good at what he did. And uh, and just a really good person, too. Real good human. I, I can totally see why he was good at the agency side of it. I can totally see why he's good at what he's doing now. Um, got a really good, uh, good, really good brain between his ears. He's really good with people. And and uh, has always been an analytical, um, you know, process-oriented guy. So um, it's been an it was an awesome two hours. We almost spent two hours together on on the call here today, and um, and yeah, I enjoyed every second of it. It's uh, he, he's played not only for some great coaches but also with some great players. Um, he he does a lot of uh, stuff in the community there in Switzerland. So we get into his his like personal. Um, his personal equation of success, which we touch on early. Uh, we talk about mental performance and, and how he feels that like the player, today's player, it's very relevant and it's becoming more relevant as far as building your own toolbox, having your own personal um, mental performance coach or, or a performance coach in your stable to help you out. He's like, the players now are recognizing this. He thinks in 10, 15 years, everyone is going to have one. He thinks this industry is completely untouched at this point. Um, he recognizes people like Roger Federer in the discussion that that have uh, really been very open about the fact that he had a mental performance coach on his staff for his almost his entire career and how that's led to some of these Swiss players like really embracing the idea of it and how successful it's been for them. So we talk about that. Um, we, we, we talk about the agency side of it. If you're interested about the agency side of it, what, what agents do for players and how they interact with the general managers, we talk on that later in the, in the discussion. Um, lots of really good stuff here. And, uh, and it was an honor to get, uh, to get Nat on the show. I know he's a super busy guy, GM of essentially three teams over there. He's got the, the junior team, he's got the U18 team, and he's got the pro team in, in, uh, in HC Lugano to deal with. And, and uh, I know how busy those, those, uh, those guys can be. So um, he 
he is a fan of the show. He's been he's been a fan of what I have going on there, and I thank him for that. And and even after we got off the off the interview, he was he was the kind of guy who just wants to help, right? He's like, hey, Podsy, like, how can, can I get you some guests or can I help out? And um, you know, so anyways, he's a super big supporter, and that's and that's really something that I'm massively grateful for because it is uh, players like him and, and and people like him that that allow these great guests to continue to come and and uh, hopefully if we can line up a few things, we might have some people like Martin St. Louis or uh, or Shane Doan or or some current uh, current players that are in the NHL from his uh, from his agency uh, allegiance still. So looking forward to having some connections through Nat and um, and yeah, I know there's a lot of good things to come here with the podcast and this interview is an example of uh, of some new info that's becoming your way from a little bit of an angle from a GM from a from a former player what he believes it takes to make it in today's game and um, and yeah, I just. We'll just pass it off to the interview here with uh, Mr. Nat Domicelli. Enjoy the conversation. You've been on my hit list for uh, for quite some time, Mr. Domicelli, but we finally got you all the way piped in live from Switzerland at <laughs> 9 o'clock at night. Nat Domicelli, thanks for joining the program. Thanks for having me, Jason. I don't know if it's is this Jason or your guests allow me to call you Podsy. Oh, I'm Podsy all day long. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, Yeah, man, like you, I mean, I guess for those listening who don't know, um, the the hockey world is is a small place a lot of the time, especially when you're like from around the same birth, you're playing in the same leagues, right? So like, I don't, I don't remember much of you in minor hockey per se, but uh, as soon as we got into the WHL, you know, the rest is really history, right? I mean, we battled against each other for four years, played in a world junior team. We went to different national camps together and then, you know, same draft. So um, a lot of those same draft events. So we actually became pretty friendly there back in the day. And then as the hockey world does, you know I mean? You go separate ways and then sometimes you come back and you collide heads again. So it's awesome to reconnect. Um, yeah, after. thanks for, I mean, it's it's been a long time. Life is is not a straight line for sure, but... But I do remember, I mean, uh, we're both born in 76. Uh, I'm originally from Edmonton, Alberta. You're, you're from British Columbia. And uh, it's, you're right. I mean, it's that time of year. It's December. And, and just before we got on live, I mean, we're talking about here we are in December. And, and we're reminiscing about the World Juniors and, and our yeah. time in a long time ago, 1996. We were, we were battling it out there for Canada. But yeah, it's you, you went to the, to the Spokane Chiefs and and I went to the Kamloops Blazers, but a lot of similar paths, you and I, for sure. Yeah. Now it looks like we're headed to the same barber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. When we, when you um, I was actually this as as I brought up that minor hockey that that when I left Vernon at fourteen and played in that major uh, bantam circuit there in in Alberta, there there wasn't an Edmonton team. There was like. We were in Sherwood Park, and then there was like a Spruce Grove team and a St. Albert team, and uh, but w- where did you play? My, so, my... so that's how what in the city of Edmonton, the the teams that were in Edmonton played just in the city. So then the the city was divided in four quadrants. And I grew up in Northeast Edmonton, played for the Maple Leaf Athletic Club, gotcha. and and I never played midget hockey. I I went uh, played Bantam AAA as a fifteen year old. And then as the 16-year-old went to the WHL in the Western Hockey League. So even in, in Bantam hockey in Edmonton back in, in the 90s, 
Um, there was a league outside of Edmonton, which you talked about, Spruce Grove, Sherwood Park, St. Albert, Leduc. Red Deer. And, and they, Red Deer, they would play Red in the Red. league, which would Calgary. And and I played in the local local league in the city, and there was the, the KC's, the Canadians, um, Southside Athletic Club, and then the Maple Leaf Athletic Club where I played. Um, gotcha. So we were we were scared of those outer outer lying cities. They were too good. Now we know why they're recruiting British Columbia kids coming over. <laughs> well, that was a hell of a league, though. I mean, that's and that was. I mean, it was. I mean, you go through the names, right? Like that that were there at the time. Um, Iggy wasn't because I was a first year, so he still wasn't there yet. But I mean, like Darcy Tucker and Frank Bannum and, you know, Mark Hurley and Mike Dubinsky and, you know, Damon Lankow and Scott Lankow and Nolan Pratt. And, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on, right, of, of, of NHLers that were playing in that league. I mean, eventually. And, uh, yeah, know, and then right? just, just everybody filtered into the WHL. And at the time, yeah. we're all kids and, and you're just playing hockey and you don't realize and, until later on in life that there were some pretty good players. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I didn't look you up, but you would have been you would have been a drafted kid then, right? To Kamloops, so you you were no, it was you no, know, it was a weird situation. It's a long story, and, it, and it's funny you talked about such a small hockey world, and and we'll get to it later. I mean, after hockey, when I worked at the Sports Corporation, um, who's owned by Jerry Johansson, and Jerry and I were partners, and Scott Bonner who's now the, the senior vice president. So a long story going rewind. When I was a child, Scott Bonner and Craig Bonner were a family in Edmonton, and, and Craig Bonner was the captain of the Blazers at the time. And Scott was my coach when I was when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And Scott was a scout for the Tri-City Americans at the time, and Scott Bonner put me on the Tri-City Americans list. Uh, but shortly before a Christmas tournament, which is now called the John Reed, my family had informed Scott probably he's not going to go to the United States to to play junior hockey, so it'd be better to take him off the list. And Scott, being a family friend, he he said, "Okay, no, I understand that." And then that tournament at the John Reed tournament, uh, I was listed by the Kamloops Blazers, and. So it was late. It was an interesting story, but I got listed when I was 15 and then went to the spring tournament and uh, had a good tournament at the springtime and, and then went to the Blazers uh, like everybody else at 16 and made the team. And then uh, that's where it all started. Right. So, uh, so then didn't get drafted, I guess, right? So did not get, no, did not get drafted. Right, so a little bit of, uh, like, was that just because you were off the radar? Were you not good enough? Uh, did you get better, like, one year later? How, how did that you know, work? You know, you don't, you don't even – you're just playing hockey at the time. It, it didn't even register what the WHL was. Right. I mean, my, my only joy of being a 14-, 15-year-old kid was playing with my friends and, and playing for the Maple Leafs and going to high school and with my buddies. Yeah. And, and we just loved hockey. And just tried to tried to do the best we could. And next thing you know, someone someone likes what they see, and then you get a phone call. And next thing you know, uh, I can remember to this day, it was it was a spring tournament, and they had a tournament in Shirt Park. The Camels Blazers had a tryout tournament in Shirt Park, and they invited me out to play. It was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and so I go to the tournament Friday, and okay, and then I come home, and then we we'll go back to the tournament on Saturday come home and then my dad says uh there's two men that want to come come to the house to, to talk to us but i don't want i don't want you there i want you away so 
you go upstairs because I don't want you talking. So it was Mr. Bob Brown, who, who was our general manager, and it was a man named Tom Rennie. And Tom was at the time uh, head coach of the Camas Blazers. So they talked to my parents that night, and then they wanted to talk to me, and my dad said, no, he's sick. He can't, he can't come. And <laughs> I learned all this after, right? And then so I went back on Sunday and finished the tournament, and, and sure enough, uh, they offered me an opportunity to come to camp and try out that that fall in Kamloops. Similar to your story, probably, and then going to Spokane, and you were drafted, and 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 you were the you were the big deal. You were the you were the guy. In well, I wasn't. I mean, yeah, I wasn't drafted. I don't know if I was the guy, but I wasn't drafted. I think what's relevant in your story. Um, well, I've told that on here just you would probably remember this now that I bring it up, but like the draft year after our birth year was the first year that everyone was eligible for it. Yeah. So that's when it got re yeah. there was no they more just transitioned, right? So they just transitioned from the list system, right? So as soon as somebody turned 13, you could list them back in, back in our day and our birth year, there was myself, Jeff Friesen and that uh, Clayton, um, Jeez. Travis Clayton, Travis Clayton. I don't even remember that name. Travis Clayton, he, yeah, yeah. So there's the three I of us. I played on Canada. A... Anyway, so yeah, tell tell draft. the story. So I there, played there was, with, there was a three yeah. of us, and then and then everyone else was eligible for the draft, and then the next year, the the uh, the seventy seven born players, everyone was available for the draft. So like that was the first time. So I actually wasn't drafted technically. I was listed, but prior prior to that draft, you were but listed. Tell me a yeah, Travis Clayton were... story. I, when I was 12 years old, I played on a summer team with Travis Clayton, Damon Lankow, Curtis Brown, and Mike Dubinsky. And Mike, Mike's father, Vern, was our coach. We were called Team Alberta. And we were already bringing kids in from Saskatchewan. For a summer <laughs> <Team> Alberta. <laughs> for a summer tournament. And, we ha and, and uh, it's just the names. I mean, to go back such a small world. Like Curtis Brown ended up playing a long time in the NHL. Damon Lankow. Yeah, he was a Selkie nominee, NHL. I believe. So I it was, was uh, yeah, we had a lot of memories from Western Canada back in the 90s for sure. But you know what? Okay, so I want to get back to you. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, know Nat's like illustrious um, junior career, first of all, and then a hell of a hell of a pro career. But you never got drafted. So like now these, like there's kids now, like, cause the draft is a much bigger deal as far as, you know, it's a like, complete, it's a completely different uh, yeah. operation now. Yeah. It's, it's a huge beast now. Right. And so these kids at like 14, like they don't get drafted and it's the end of the world and you know, this, that, and the other. I mean, I just wanted to point out that, you know, you never got drafted and then went on to score 52 and 59 goals in WHL and was a fourth round draft pick. Right. Like that's, uh, it, it seems like nobody really recognizes that these things happen all the time still, you know, like it's not like you have to be on the radar at 14 or else you're washed up. So, uh, and I assume at the time that like, it wasn't, was it even a blip on your radar? Like, was it, you know, you said you were just playing hockey. What was it? Was it in, yeah, was it a punch I, in the gut a little bit that you never got drafted or how did you take that? No, I, no, I know. I didn't even know what the, what the draft was at the time. It was completely different than the world we live in today. Uh, the way we live in the world we live in today, I think if we're honest, Jason, both of us would have been drafted because it's, there's, I don't know how many rounds, but there's almost more than 10 rounds of abandoned draft. And every single kid in Western Canada is is under the radar. And, and we lived in a time, there was no social media, there was no Instagram. So it was, uh, it was a very different time. Uh, but the message I would have for any young boy that's playing hockey is, 
is you can only live one day at a time. You, If your dream is to play in the Western Hockey League or your dream is to play in the NHL and you're 14 years old, well, you're not going to get to the NHL from 14 to 15. It's impossible. And you're not going to get to be a WHL player at 14 years old, so there's no sense to worry about it. All you can control is what you can do today and 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 be the best you can that day and do that today tomorrow the next day and and that's how that's how you can grow yeah yeah i mean amazing advice uh sage advice there and and the other thing is i think you already you already hit on it like the guys that play generally speaking um and i'd say it's a vast majority and at least play for a long time absolutely love it <laughs> You know, like you, like you got to love it. You, you you can't do it because you want to hear your name called and you think it's great and you know you're doing it for the ego boost. So you just got to play because you love to play. And whether your name gets called or not, you just love to play, so you keep playing. And if you and if you keep having that attitude and that passion, generally you get you improve faster than the other guys as well, right? Because you like it more and you want it more and you're putting more effort in. And uh, and at some point, somebody is is going to take notice. For sure. And and I do a lot of public speaking over here in Switzerland and and asking these questions to the young generation of people here. And in the core of what I try to pass on, it's really simple. Like 3P equals S. And what that means is S stands for success. So if this is how I've followed my life and, and work with the kids that I work with over here and with our teams is number one is passion. And we talked about passion. It's very simple. You need to love what you do. Number two is preparation. And preparation is very simple. You need a plan. You need a monthly plan. You need a yearly plan. You need a weekly plan. You even need a daily plan. You need to be exactly prepared. If you're reaching a goal, well, a goal is only going to happen if it becomes a reality. And a 14-year-old boy that wants to play in the WHL is not going to be in the WHL tomorrow. Uh, so the only thing he can do to, to reach that goal is, is we need to have a good season. We need to become one of the best players on my team this year. So preparation, what's that mean? Uh, in the world of hockey, you live week to week. So when we wake up Monday morning, these kids are in school. These kids have practices. These kids have games. So how do you, how do you become one of the best players on your team? Well, you need to be one of the hardest workers. So how do you become one of the hardest workers? Well, you need to be in great shape because it's hard to work when you're tired. So how do I stay in great shape? Well, okay, and now I need I need to live good. I need to eat properly. I need to get my rest. I need to be organized. Now you have school, you have practice, and then the games are coming up. So kids need to physically write down what their day-to-day -day routine is going to look like and be prepared. And so I talk a lot about preparation. And then number three is persistence. And there's not a single player in the world that is not going to go through a hard time, ourselves included. We can, we can talk all day about the hard times we had to go through. Yeah. And if we quit every time it was hard, we would have quit at 12 years old. So you need to be persistent. So if you have passion for what you do and you're willing to put a, put a plan together and be prepared and do what it takes, and then you have a strong amount of willpower and you're very persistent then you're going to be successful in life and that doesn't relate just to hockey but but that's the path that i chose in my life and and it's it's worked so far for big team guy i'm a yeah. big team guy that's why i chose where i am today 
consider the best player on my team uh, at any point in my career. And so it was very important that, that, that I was part of the team. I was a good teammate and I realized you have to find a way to be on a roll on a team to, to move forward in life. Yeah. I love that, man. That's great. The, the three P's. The, the passion point is uh, is something that I actually talk about in week two of, of the program that I created. And it's uh, like a lot of people say you can't teach it. Uh, and I do, to an extent, believe that, you know, that you can't necessarily teach it. But I think that you can focus on it. And I think there's a difference there, right? Like, I think it's something that that when when players are going through it, and, and especially when things aren't great or, you know, or things are getting hard to your point. Like, one of the, one of the reasons why I talk about it is because you forget about all the good stuff of why you're playing, right? Like why you, why you put the skates on in the first place, you know, like there's a million little things, nuances that you, that players love about the game of hockey. But when things aren't going well, we kind of forget about them all. Right. Well, so, there's a, yeah, you're right, Jason. And there's a lot of pressures around the game today, especially, especially as you get closer to pro hockey where we are. And then now in, in Western Canada, it's starting even younger and younger, the pressures that are from the outside, which is, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's the world we live in. And, but I mean, people like yourself are there to, to help guide this next generation of, of kids uh, to kind of cancel the noise. Yeah, well, for sure. And, uh, and yeah, and, and so with that passion, with that passion piece, you know, like I'm just thinking of some of the things that, that players have recently said, you know, like they, they love the first tracks on the ice, like that sound of that being the first one on the ice, you know, like that, that can be forgotten about unless you actually are intentional about when you're getting on the ice first, that you hear it. Right. And then that fires you up inside, you know, like the scoring yeah, goals, then, obviously a lot of people say, you know, being in the dressing room with the guys and being beside one of your good buddies and having to laugh, you know, like all those things are, are, are things that when we do walk into a day, it can charge us up, right? If we if we care to if we care to recognize them. So, anyways, passion for sure. I mean, you, you are going to be. Some guys are wired a little different. Um, I do believe that. I do believe it's something that we can become a little bit more passionate about with the right intention and focus. But then the preparation one is amazing because that's the one that really. I think it's forgotten a lot. You know, I mean, and even and I don't know what yeah. that'd be interesting to ask you actually because like my preparation up until. Like on a personal level, probably my fourth year pro was almost just a routine that had been developed from the time I was in junior. You know what I mean? And with really no rhyme or reason. Like it was just sort of what I did. It was a habit. It wasn't really like how to prepare properly for a game. Did you ever get into like a, a professional preparation aspect for your game? No, but I mean, you the the dangerous part about about the preparation is everybody is ready to prepare when things are tough. When, when you're struggling or the coach is on you, and, the, and coaches are guilty of this too, it's like it's, it's when times are good and when you're rolling and things are feeling good is when you, can, you have to have a routine and a day-to-day -day daily habits that continue to allow you to be at the best. And, and the best way to explain it is that every league in the world outside the NHL, time will make you better. And if you look at the W, what I mean by this, but when you get to the NHL, time will not make you better. And if this is the WHL, the best kids at 19 leave. So when you're 16, it's very difficult, as we can attest. But then as we were 17, it got a little bit easier because the best nine, now we're a little bit older and now the kids are gone. 18 got easier, 19, you're the guy, right? You're, you're the oldest guy in the league. And then, so you should dominate. 
Same thing happens when you get to the American Hockey League. Well, if, you, if you're drafting the NHL, they send you down. Now you're in the American Hockey League. But if you dominate the American Hockey League, then and they send you down again the next year while all those guys that are too good for the AHL, they go to the NHL. And so now you're you're like the man in the AHL because everybody's called up. But when you get to the NHL, there is no super NHL. When Sidney when Sidney Crosby gets over 120 points or 130 points the next year, he's still in the NHL. He doesn't graduate and go to the super NHL, and so now it's easier for you. <laughs> right? So so what happens is that uh, you climb this mountain and you get to the very top. And when you get to the very top, those are the best people in the world in, in whatever sector of life you choose. And so when you talk about a daily preparation and, 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 and a consistency of daily habits, this is what people don't know and don't understand until they actually get there. And, and, and I lived it on my skin. I got to the NHL and I was in the NHL and, I was having some success and it was very, very demanding to, to stay there. And it's the only professional sports is wild. It's the only profession in the world. You get drafted the next year, they have a draft. They're actively trying to find people to replace you. And then it's the player's job to stay in that fight. And that's why it's, we all appreciate the superstars of our sport because we all know how hard it is to be that elite, elite player for a long time. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, there's no place for them to go. Uh, and you're always, they're always trying to look for something better or somebody younger or somebody faster and everything else. And that's where the, you know, establishing yourself and your game and where you live in that ecosystem is so important too, right? Um, well, that's why you got to work at it every day. Even if you get a hat trick and you're a little 14-year-old and – uh, you're rolling. Like I have two boys, 16 and 13, and, and they're pretty good little players. And they come home and they're like, daddy, I got three last night. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Like there's another boy on the other side of the world. He's doing the same thing. So, uh, you know, it's hard when you're a dad, you, you want to just love them and let them enjoy the game. But you, you have to stay humble. This game, you have to stay humble and, and you have to work on it. I'm going to take a short break from my discussion with Nat Domicelli just to continue to thank you for supporting the program, also for being a part of the program. Uh, as I mentioned last time, there's a lot of you that are now like reaching out and saying, hey, you should interview this guy or here's a contact for so-and-so and I think they'd be a they'd be a great guest. So that, that that's phenomenal. One of the things I'm also trying to do now in my parent group, which I believe I've spoken on here a few times, but I do have a parent group on Facebook. Uh, so if you are a parent of a hockey player that's somewhere on their hockey journey and you're trying to do the best you can uh, for your son or daughter by all means join the parent group it's free uh, the discussions in there are super valuable uh, I, I share bits and pieces from this podcast in there I, I uh, you get to ask questions to future podcast guests in there and uh, and we have a really good back and forth about different uh, items that are relevant to today's player so I try and do my best to support the journey of uh, of the parents and 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 of their sons or daughters in the, in that group and sometimes I even do broadcast some of these interviews live inside the Facebook group so uh, by all means join us there on Facebook if you also want to follow me on Instagram I'm at Jason Padolin and uh, and these interviews are being broadcast 
uh, or recorded and then uploaded to YouTube, my YouTube channel, which is up my hockey with Jason Padon. So they are all there in their entirety. I also do clips and a, and a segment I call Lessons from the Pro, where I will expand on some of these mindset concepts that sometimes get brought up in these interviews and um, and get into some of the training aspects that I actually do with players and that I that I help players and teams out with. And perhaps it'll help you or your player out with if you're a, if you're a a parent, a hockey parent or a hockey coach, or if you are a player yourself, be sure to check out those on YouTube. It's called Lessons from the Pro, uh, and there's some really good trainings in there that um, that, that I use from, from the guests on, on this program. So thanks again for being a part of Up My Hockey, this growing community, this growing entity. Uh, Nat, during this conversation, boy, he, he really emphasizes the importance of what mental training can do and what mindset training can do. And, uh, and what having somebody in your corner to help you out with that stuff, the game within the game, right? The game away from the rink um, is, is super important and it's becoming much more relevant now than it ever has been in the past. So uh, love all the discussions that are happening. Uh, lots of ways to follow me, lots of, lots of ways to be a part of Up My Hockey. So by all means, pick, pick the social media channel of your choosing. And uh, now we'll get back to the interview with Matt Domicelli. Yeah, and to your point, you I mean talking about when it's going good because with with what I do now, I often am talking to players when things aren't going good. And if it goes even younger than that, right? If I'm not even talking about the junior level, let's say you're, you know, midgets or bantam age players, uh, the parents are the one that are calling me in that scenario. And it's always when something's not going well, right? Like Johnny doesn't have his confidence or Johnny has a hard time dealing with this or dealing with that. And that's 100% fine. Like I have no problem having those phone calls and helping those kids out. But like, my whole thing is, is like, this should be like a high performance strategy, right? Like, and, and that means like when things are going good, how do you even get better? Or how do you recognize why things are going good right now, right? Like to be cognizant of it, like to have the self-awareness to understand why it's working and to like continue to do those things or vice versa, continue to add on, right? To continue to get better instead of like always trying to think of it as like some, like the mental support as like when something is broken or something isn't, isn't working, that's when we need it. You know, I, I, I'm trying to shift the thinking of not only the parents, but the athletes involved. And I'm talking even at the junior level, right? Like pro level, like figure out why it works. You know what I mean? And be really, really aware of why it works. So you can continue to, to, to replicate that, but you know, not many people do to your point. No, the, I, in, in Switzerland, uh, at our pro team, we, most of our players that we have a mental coach that they work with, um, we don't have one just for just for the team because it, it is it is very individual and we allow our, our players to be free. But most of them do work with somebody, uh, whether it's someone like yourself or um, somebody else. Uh, but it's very, very important in, in today's game. And we're lucky in Switzerland, like one of the world's greatest athletes who just retired is Roger Federer. And because we're in a small country, I know it's tennis, but he spoke a lot about it. And, and Roger had a personal coach, both fitness and mental, his entire career. And he spoke openly about it. And they said, one of the questions was, was Roger, why, why would you have uh, all these people around you? And, and it was just, this was his routine. This is, he was an amazingly talented guy. He's a, he's a great ambassador for, for Switzerland and and for sports and and we were able to listen to this uh, in public television here and he talks about he doesn't go into great detail i haven't had the opportunity to to hear it much in detail but i know people that have heard it and and he 
it was amazing. Like if, if it's good enough for Roger, then it's good enough for everybody in Switzerland was kind of the, the message. Right. And well, yeah. a lot of Swiss players uh, that are in the NHL now, hockey players uh, are big with this. Well, and, and well, I mean, I lo- love him as an example because there's a guy that like ice in his veins, like so stoic. And if you would think of somebody who is like mentally gifted, let's say, if there's such a thing, right? Like that has it together and doesn't mm-hmm. get too high, doesn't get too low, is just able to rise to the occasion. You're like, okay, it's Roger Federer. And a lot of times people will connect the dots to that being, well, he's just better than everybody else. He's just naturally that way. Right? Yeah. And it's, and then when you hear him and it, I can, playing with Switzerland at the Olympics and playing with, with some some now, like Roman Yossi, for example, who's now in the NHL. He's another guy that um, was very big on individual coaching, uh, working on his game. And and it's something that is part of our world. It's very, very big in, in Switzerland and in Europe. Um, it's, it's starting to come in North America, I would say. But it's definitely a major, major factor in uh, somebody's toolbox going forward for the next generation of kids. I, if, if we look over the next 15 years, it won't surprise me that this becomes the norm where, yeah. where every player not only has their strength coach, their nutritionist, but, but they also have a performance coach on their side because a, today's coach on a team has you know, has 30 players minimum that he, he's got to, he's got to run the team and players want to take responsibility for their own lives. And, and so, so they've gone out on their own and, and hired performance coaches. Yeah. Well, and I bet you Roger would answer the question almost like back with like, well, why wouldn't I have somebody, you know, like, like that's like, that's almost like the, where the question's going to be, right. You said in 15, 20 years, it's going to be like, if you don't, you're going to be the, you're going to be the unicorn because that's just the way it works. And that's the way it goes. I had a, I had coffee the other just well, what was it yesterday with Ryan Johnson, right, assistant GM of the of the Vancouver Canucks, and and we spoke at length about that, like about the there's so much emphasis on the physical stuff, which is awesome, and it was way more than you when you or I were around, of course, right? Like as far as you know, skating coaches and skills coaches and everything else, and there's a massive emphasis for these guys and watching the video and doing everything. But he he was like, you know, the the biggest uptick we see isn't by getting the right skill coach, but it's like finding that puzzle piece for that player that allows them to unlock all those gifts that they have right and that's usually between the years like that's the biggest competitive advantage for an individual player and uh and they and they have different resources to try and uncover that too of course right but um to your point the coaches can't really do that because there's just so many players and there's so many guys and there's so many other things on their plate so um these guys are starting to become much more willing and and not even willing but like motivated to find somebody to work with that's going to help them because that that's the competitive advantage right now sure and that that's that's where the world is headed uh it's very present like i said where we are in switzerland uh it was very present with the players that i worked with in europe before i became the general manager in lugano and it's like you said it's everybody's looking for an advantage teams are are looking for that edge. Analytics has become a part of our life from a team perspective. And in pro hockey now, the the opportunity for somebody to get better is is out there. And kids, this generation with the internet and social media, they have access to enormous amounts of information. And and these this generation of players are smart and they want to take responsibility for their careers. So they're not waiting. 
they're not waiting for the team coach or the or the club to tell them what to do. They're they're taking initiative on their own, and and in the end, it's going to make the game better. And uh, it's like you said, it, it wasn't normal when we played, uh, it, but it is now, and it is definitely going to be for the next generation. It's going to be an automatic for teams and players, in my opinion. What a feather in your cap to go back to uh, the Blazers, like to be recruited by one of the best talent scouts probably to ever walk the face of the earth, at least at the junior level. You know, Mr. Brown put together those teams there that was absolutely ridiculous. And, uh, you know, I've had Tyson Nash in the uh, – I've had, I've had again, uh, I've had uh, – well, Luca was supposed to come on. I've had some of your guys from that from that era. Um but I, but it, it's obviously more of a of, of reflection now, like looking back. Because when you're in it, you don't – I'm sure you don't appreciate it or you don't even realize that you're playing with a future Hall of Famer. You're playing with, you know, whatever. How many thousands of NHL games were in that locker room with you? You know, I mean, over the four years that you were there with your 200 games being a part of it. Um, like what a special time that must have been, like now looking back. Yeah, it would help me. I mean, I was very lucky. I'm the first one to admit I was very lucky. You're, you're absolutely right. Me at the time, I had no idea um, what I was walking into. We have a lot to thank uh, for the person you just mentioned, Mr. Bob Brown. Uh, Don Hay was my coach. Before Don Hay was Tom Rennie. Uh, Stu McGregor was the assistant general manager. Ken Hitchcock was the coach before Tom Rennie. So when I arrived in 1992, the foundation of the organization had been built for in the 80s. I think they won six WHL championships. They'd been to the Memorial Cup, um, I think, twice. And then in 92, the year before, I and they won the first Memorial Cup in Seattle. So when I showed up, there was already champions on the team. And then the names, there are too many to list. Uh, there was there was Hall of Famers on the team in 92 before I even arrived in Kamloops. And there were Hall of Famers in the 80s that were on this team. And then I joined a team, and then there was Hall of Fame teammates that, that went on to have illustrious NHL careers. And you're right. we You look back and you look at the names of this junior team and I don't know if we were the best team, but we were pretty good. Yeah. I don't know how. I don't know how, but we. But you know what? It goes back to those three principles. Like if you talk about passion, we had some of the highest character guys that that wanted to compete, and you know who they are. Every night, and it just wore off on everybody. Like I'm the first one to admit, I was not a physical player. I was probably the last guy that should have been playing in the Western Hockey League in 1993 at 16 <laughs> years old. <laughs> I would have been, I think I'm better for this generation, but you had no choice. It was just survival of the fittest out there. And we were competitive and our practices were hard and losing was not acceptable. And there was an internal battle every day. And, and those guys, those teammates, those four years in Kamloops, allowed me to have the career I had. Yeah, that's um that was a special group. You mean and it was it was really cool to hear Jerome talk just about his his first year. You mean you were there as a second year at that point and you saw Jerome again walk in and 
and maybe now, like that's even probably a cool conversation to have because Jerome said he like he couldn't get in the lineup, right? Because it was the Camloops Blazers. You know, he was. Wow, well, you know, he's he pretty modest. There, there was room for Jerome. There's no. <laughs> he, he was well, very good. He was but, very of course, good. of course. But he said, like he said that year, which was one of the hardest years for him ever. Although he never left, like he did play. I, I don't remember exactly, but like I think he played forty six games or something. Or it was very, it, yeah. It was very difficult for all of us. Yeah. I'm a seventy six. He was a seventy seven. So when I arrived. My rookie year, there was five 16-year-olds. Uh, we all made the team, but but you're right. I only played 45 games out of 72. And right. the next year, I was a 17-year-old, and, and Jerome came in as a 16-year-old, and he was very, very good. And and he didn't play all the games either. Yeah. And well, he he my, didn't, a, lot of, a lot of times he wouldn't play until the second period or the third, depending on the score of the game, right? No, so there was nights he wouldn't even dress. Yeah. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I, uh, two of the other 16-year-olds were Nolan Baumgartner, who was a first-rounder to Washington, who went on to have a great career, and now he's a great coach. And the other one was Shane Doan, who was a Hall of Famer. And and Shane never played either, played half the games. Right. Uh, and, Shane, and Shane, and then the next year, Shane had a late birthday, so the next year, my second year when I was 17, it was Jerome and Shane's draft year. And and these are these are Hall of Fame guys that went in the first round. Like they're phenomenal, but at the time because we didn't know what was going on, we were just playing. And then that was 1994. That's when we won the Memorial Cup in Laval. Yeah. And uh, well, what do you think about like? I mean, that's there's an interesting case because it it has been. I mean, it'll it'll forever be a topic of discussion. uh, Like whether. Like, what's the best route, you know, at, at, in that scenario, the 16-year-old kid that's not in and out of the lineup, you know, I mean, not playing games, not playing good minutes, or should they be playing AAA hockey and be in first power play and playing 25 minutes a night, right? Like, I, I think that we could probably argue both sides of that coin, but here's a scenario where there's Jerome McGinley and Shane Doan who couldn't play at 16. Well, they could often. play. I don't know if Bob Brown had a big strategy that he <laughs> – we, but it, it was one of the – develop. I think we had 27, 28 players that right. we carried. And and I don't I don't I don't I don't know why they could have played they were good enough to play uh, it was it was just there was a hierarchy there was a lot of good players that were eighteen nineteen twenty and to answer your question Jason is I guess you have to trust the people that you're around uh, if you get drafted and the Western Hockey League wants to keep you at sixteen they have a plan for you then then you have to trust them like and work at it if you. If you feel it's best for you to stay out of the league and and go a different path, then then I, I wouldn't say there, there's in today's hockey there's not a right or wrong road. Right. The, the world's so small that the the scouts of the world with the internet they're going to find everybody that's good. Uh, it goes back to what I said. You have to you have to play. You have to do every day, and you have to play. You can't fake. So. Is there a writer? I mean, everybody wants to play. Nobody wants to ride the bench. But right. but if you're in the Western Hockey League and they have for you, then you got to work at it. Sure. So I guess it's just, I mean, that's where the humble pie comes in too, right? Because there's nobody wants to be out of the lineup. And no matter where you're playing, everyone thinks that they probably should be in the lineup. You know, and, and then I, I just like, I mean, that example, and of, and of course, I'm sure they were good enough to play, to your point. I'm not saying they weren't good enough to play, but for whatever reason, they they were not in the lineup, and they weren't everyday guys, right? But there they were, no. still kept showing up, you know, showed up the next year, and obviously still still became Hall of Fame players. So, 
um i mean that's the last p on your of your p's is the persistence right like just to, to keep yeah keep you, just, you just you just keep banging on the door and and every day and and you're getting better and then and it just gets harder uh you get into pro hockey the competition's higher the but it's persistence yeah just i mean you just got to keep going you got to go every day and we're all chasing something, right? So, and, and I'm still in it today. I, I love hockey. I'm the general manager now. We have my team. I'm old. I can't play, but but I love my guys, and and that's what I push on my guys. And and we're chasing the next trophy. We're in competition, and that's what gets me up in the morning. When when you talked about yourself, and I mean, you you, you were making fun of yourself a little bit there, saying that you weren't the right style of player for, for that era. But obviously, you, you mean you were able you were able to get it done from an offensive side, but. I do want to dig into to that whole idea of your approach because it was it was hard. It was tough, right? It was tough. It was a hard league. It was a tough league. Um, on any given night, you could legitimately get hurt, right? Like there there was there was a strong chance of something happening that you that you could get hurt, and that's not a comfortable environment to play in, especially to try and perform and to score goals in. Uh, how did you go about? handling that aspect of being a goal scorer being a point producer um yet really not wanting to engage you know i mean in 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 the physical fight or yeah. whatever the case may be you know well i had no problem to engage about trying to score a goal right um i had i was not a fighter um i was not good at fighting and but i i got beat up a lot when i was 16 in the league it was just I wasn't good at fighting, <laughs> and but but we got in them, but I lost them, and uh, but but the one thing I will say about myself, Jason, is is I love to score goals. I absolutely love to create offense and find a way to put that puck in the net, and and I loved it. And, and every day I woke up and I wanted to score in practice, and I wanted to score in exhibition games, and I wanted to score in summer practice, and I just. It, the game of hockey to me as a forward was okay well drop the puck let me try and score and 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 you can talk to my old coaches they said probably I wasn't the best defensive player in the world I was like well I'm going to score goals I want to score and and as I grew as a player and you you become a complete player and you learn the the inner findings of the game but going back to when I was 15 16 17 and uh that's i think what kept me around and it goes to back to passion um, i was the first to admit okay i'm not the best penalty killer i'm not the most physical guy but i'll put myself against anybody who wants to find a way to score i love the power play i love the the strategy of how to work the puck around to, to score on the power play how to create offense behind the net how to score off the rush and and all those things uh i really took uh it was, it was, that was hockey for me. And I think it was because I grew up in Edmonton, to be honest with you, Jason, and, and watching the Edmonton Oilers in the eighties. Uh, I saw all those teams and, and those players just loved to score goals and watching them. And then it was just a fun way to, to play hockey. And that's, that's kind of how I grew up. Just wanting to score goals. I love that. I love that you mentioned the fact that, you know, that you have like, there's there's a couple of ways to compete. I mean, as you know, I'm more speaking for the audience. You know, and sometimes it's the more conventional way of you know, like banging banging the puck off the wall in your own zone and you know having to block a shot. And you know, maybe it's the it's the defenseman in front of the net that's got to clear somebody out. And then there's the guys that need to score. And and scoring's hard. 
Yeah, I mean, scoring's hard on a, for on a lot of levels, but you got to be prepared, and especially back when we were doing it, like to to go to those dirty areas where you're going to pay the price to put that puck in the net, right? Like. You were a guy that could score from distance, uh, which was nice. You know, I mean, you could score from the perimeter with, with your shot and with your release, but that's not where you got all 59 of your goals from by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I mean, you had to go to places that were uncomfortable to be in. And um, and that's a massively underrated part of, of the compete aspect. You know, we were we were dealing with that with our younger guys this tournament that we were just at where our, our younger, I mean, my U13 guys are having a hard time scoring goals. And we, we started counting how far away they are from the net when they actually did score, like when we scored these goals, right? And it's, you know, like those areas are hard to be in. Like not not everybody's Ovechkin that scores off the half wall and the one-timer all the time, right? Like you got to go to these areas where it hurts. And uh, boy, it did hurt when we went to those areas. But I mean, so good on you. I mean, that's the thing. And that's one thing that I, that I think that I'm really proud of from our generation too, to be able to score goals in that generation. Like you, you, had, you had to be bold and you had to be brave and you had to be courageous or you weren't going to get it done. Yeah, you have. I mean, the the net hasn't moved in a hundred years, and and if anybody's not sure where to go to score goals, I mean, they even they even help you. They paint the they paint the blue paint around the front of the net to give you an idea. They just go stand close to the blue paint, and if and, the, and if you're not sure, just if you're not sure where to go in the offensive zone, you don't have the puck. Well, just just go stand by the goalie because it's it's either going to go in the neutral zone or it's eventually going to make its way to the net. So, uh, I mean, it's you you said it right. The word compete, when, when you hear the word compete, everybody thinks, okay, I got to finish my checks. I got to bang. I got to be a bruiser. But in reality, everybody's different. And and for a skilled guy and a young kid, compete is is working on your shot, working on your release, working on rebounds, working on tips, uh, being around the net and want to score goals, wanting to get in there to get those rebound goals. Um, and, yeah, it's uh, it was it was just it was kind of what – what identified me as I guess as a as a hockey player was was wanting to score goals. Yeah, and it, maybe we'll jump. I mean, you guys had an immense amount of success there. You were around almost everyone on your team, and and the Blazers went on to play in the NHL. Like, and I mean that all honestly. Like, it's crazy. Like, how many guys graduated um, to that league? Uh, so we could talk about the Blazers all day long, but I want to talk about you and like making that jump. So you end up being a fourth round pick in, in 94. Uh, we were the same draft, almost the same birthday, by the way. I don't even know if you know that I'm February 18th. You're the 16th. So we're pretty close to bang on the same age. I'm the 17th. One day. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Wikipedia's got it wrong. I don't know. Okay. Why, so 17th. Yeah, 17th. Yeah. So we're a day. We're like yeah, one day apart. Um, and, and then, so you like, so your draft, your, I mean, you you blew up like after you got drafted. Fifty two goals, fifty nine goals, one hundred and forty eight points. You're, you're over two points a game. Your last year, junior, uh, and then you make the jump. And and making the jump was NHL in your first year. Similar to me, we had sim similar paths there. But did you make the Whalers out of camp, or how did that work? That that yeah, I, I I made the team at a training camp. Um, there were some injuries, like, and I think that's why I made it because I was sent down shortly thereafter. But I did make the team at a training camp. Uh, I played an NHL game before I played a, an AHL game. Uh, like you said, I was drafted by the Hartford Whalers. Uh, my first coach was Paul Maurice in 1996. That's wild. Uh, yeah, young Paul Maurice. He was uh, he was there in Hartford, and uh, my line mates were open at night. Mark Jansons was the center and Stu Grimson was on the right side. So we were, we were the bruising fourth line that night. And 
uh, I did, and then yeah, and then I and then I got sent down once everybody got healthy, and then I spent some time in the American Hockey League in Springfield, and then I, I was up and down, up and down, and then I got traded my rookie year to the Calgary Flames uh, in the new year. So it was that was a, that was a challenging time. My rookie year, I ended up a uh, little bit in the NHL, a little bit in the American League, traded Calgary, finished the year with Calgary Flames, joined them uh, uh, right before the trade deadline. Interesting story. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was actually it was a weird night. It was the Hartford Whalers were playing the Calgary Flames, and I was in the minors in the time. I think it was early March, and I was living with a family because I was only twenty years old. I was living with a host family. My parents didn't want me in my own apartment at twenty in in the states. So, and the phone rings at like two o'clock in the morning. I'm not answering it, right? So it's just on the voice machine, and this message is for Nat. It's the general manager, of the Hartford Whalers. Is Jim Rutherford, uh, please call me back. So then the billets wake up and phone rings again five minutes later. And, uh, Jim Rutherford, not, uh, I'm sorry to tell you this part of the business. We've, we've traded you to the Calgary Flames. Um, thank you for everything you've done. And, and the Calgary Flames will call you. We wanted a veteran defenseman and they wanted you in return along with, with others. So, my, so I was traded and then like, Five minutes later, Al Coates, who was the general manager of Calgary, called me. Welcome to the Calgary Flames. Sorry for all the confusion. Uh, we traded last night after the game. Calgary had played in Hartford. And the next morning, they said, we're in Florida now. Come to the Hartford airport tomorrow morning. There'll be a plane ticket for you. And you're going to join the team in, in Florida. And that was, uh, that was trade one. That's crazy. So, like, what are the parallels is what I'm crazy. Because, I mean, that was essentially... Almost the same thing happened to me, right? So I was traded at the deadline to uh, to Toronto, our, our, my rookie year too. So um, shocking, totally, yeah, it was completely <laughs> to, shocking. To, yeah, to say the least, completely shocking. I wonder why he called you at two a.m. That's so strange. You couldn't. Well, wait the, for the, him to get out. they played. They played that night, and they made the deal that that I guess after the game, uh, I was uh, it was myself and Glenn Featherstone, right from Hartford, uh, and the late Steve Chason. Um, who unfortunately passed away uh, when he played with Carolina. Um, but Ka Steve had played in Calgary, and they made the trade after the game. Uh, and so I guess they, they needed to get a hold of me. And then, like I said, there was no social media back at the time. And, right. And then the, ne the next morning, I was on a plane. And they um, and you were having a good, good year there. Like uh, in Springfield, I'm talking about, like 24 goals in 39 games. That's uh, 48 points over a point a game as a 20 year old. Like that's, uh, it looks like you just stepped in and didn't really miss a beat, obviously, right? You feel, still feeling good from junior and, and didn't really have much, yeah, much of a hard time adjusting. Yes. It was fun. Springfield, we were split with Phoenix. Phoenix and Hartford shared the team. So uh, we had a lot of prospects down and. And I just, it, it was comfortable from the beginning. Like I, I talked before, uh, the AHL feel comfortable to me. Uh, I'd come off my last year junior. I'd made the team in training camp. I had played some NHL games, so I had confidence. And, and they were very good in their communication with me. They, they always explained to me why I was going down, what was going on. So it was a very healthy, uh, healthy process with Hartford. That was for sure. That helped. And, and so let, let's talk about that because I, I, I can relate to success at the AHL level from a goal scoring perspective and from being, you know, whatever top scorer in the league at one point when I was there and, and had success from a young age too, as you did. Um, 
And then you you had more games and more success at the NHL level as well, um, scoring those goals. But what was the biggest difference between being a scorer at the AHL level to the NHL level, or, or why, you know, why the forty goal pace that you could per, con- consistently put up at the AHL level, um, not really get that at the NHL level? Other than yeah, that, no, that no, that's a good question. I mean, and that's what I talked about when you get to the top of the top of the iceberg, where things change. People, what people don't understand is, is the gap from junior to the American Hockey League is is a big gap, but it's still small. The gap from the American Hockey League to the NHL is enormous, and the top line players that are in the NHL the year before are still there. So, if I wanted to become a forty goal scorer with the Calgary Flames at the time. I was competing against Theron Fleury, and and he was not going anywhere. And then it became a situation: you get a chance, you get a chance over time. And and to be honest, my our coach at the time, Brian Sutter, was very very good. He was very honest with all of us young guys, and he he tried his best to explain it to us. He said you need to do other things. You need to be good defensively, good on the wall, be able to kill penalties. You can't because you're not going to score. The The defensemen are too good, and the power plays are for our superstars. So it, it took a while. That's why I was up and down early in my career. I was having a hard time scoring at the, at the top levels, and then I'd float down to the fourth line. So the general manager, the management, didn't want me not getting ice time and not developing, so back to the American League to work on my game and, so I think in my early years in Calgary, that was the hard part. Uh, and then over time, I started to develop, and I thought I became a more complete player, and that allowed me to to get on and play, you know, the games that I played with with Atlanta and then in Minnesota. So it's uh, it's a process. You have to go through it. And, I mean, when you're always the top guy and always scoring, you don't you don't realize and then you get to the highest level and but it, it happens to everybody if you look at the nhl it's it's filled with guys that um and you had a guest on recently brad brad larson who mentioned this it's you want to survive in the nhl you you have to add things to your toolbox because like we said Sidney crosby's not going anywhere yeah yeah well i find it interesting though like and that's when I do watch guys, I mean, there's sometimes there's like elite talent that gets put in those, you know, whatever. I mean, you're a right winger. Let's say you, you get that top line right winger spot or, or, or the second line spot, you know, and then, and then they, you're, you're there not to fail, but to succeed, you know, if that makes any sense, right? Like, it's not like, okay, let's see how it goes. And if it doesn't work out, then you're going to go down to the minors. It's almost like, you know, we're going to keep giving you that chance because we believe that you can be that guy for us, right? Like, you have to do it every day. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it also helps like when those guys, like the elite guys get drafted to the worst players because you're not trying to get rid of, you know, whatever, Steven Stamp. I mean, how do you how do you make the lightning right now, right? Like, it's crazy. You know, if, if you're somebody, whose spot are you going to take in a top six role, no matter how good you are? And that's why they draft 25th every year, you know what I mean? Because those guys aren't ready to go take over those top six spots. But if you get drafted to a worse team in the NHL, like, it's easier to crack the top six in, in for the Coyotes, obviously, than it is somewhere else in the league, right? So I do see that happening. But I guess that's a long, long, long way around. I'm going to use Cole Caulfield as an example, right? Like, he he was an illustrious goal scorer everywhere that he's been. Um, there was some knocks on whether his size would translate this side or the other. Last year, he had a really hard time getting it done. And I didn't watch him every game. I didn't see how many minutes he had or he didn't have. Um, 
but then now, or that the coaching change comes in, and now he's the Cole Caulfield that they wanted him to be. But he wasn't that Cole Caulfield at a point in time. You know, like I, I just find it interesting how some guys like do end up doing what they're supposed to do or could do, and then other guys don't. Like, was Cole Caulfield this far away from being a career minor leaguer? I don't know. But he looks pretty good in the NHL right now. No, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, uh, he's a really good player, um, and and he's doing very well right now. But the same thing for Cole Caulfield is the same thing for everybody else. Is is he's gonna have to just get a lifestyle and be really committed and and stay at it summer after summer and year after year because as soon as you slip, they see it and. You see lots of guys, and it's and it's not bad. It's just we talked about. There's a draft. There's always someone else coming. So it's it's you against the system. You have. Do you to... think a guy like and you? I think you played against him. I didn't look it up though. Um, Marty St. Louis. Were you there when Marty was there in St. John? Yeah, Marty and I were. We were, we were teammates. We were teammates. Uh, Nineteen ninety-seven, St. John. Yeah. So we were t- we were teammates in Calgary. Okay, so, so there's a guy. There's another guy, right? So. I've heard about his work ethic and his competitiveness and I never, I didn't know him personally. Right. Um, But I I did hear the story, whether this was right or wrong, that the Calgary said that he'll never play in the NHL when they sent him down at one point. I don't know if that's true or not. And then he ends up going on to win the Hart trophy. Now, was that him getting that much better over those years or is that like a lack of opportunity or like, what what would you describe that as in the case of Marty St. Louis? Yeah, he's, he's very determined. He's very, very, very determined was, it took a long time. I mean, Marty and I played together when, when he was a rookie, he was in Kansas city. We were in St. John flames. It was, I believe it was 1997. We had a very good team. And our coach at the time was Bill Stewart who went on to coach the Islanders. And then Bill was, he wanted more players. Bill was very competitive as well. And it was like a chance to win the call top players. And Bill and the management were looking for guys. And, and there was a guy, Marty St. Louis, who was playing in the IHL. Well, finished his college in Vermont, was in the IHL, and didn't even, wasn't even on an NHL deal. And Calgary signed him. He showed up. He was one of our best players in the American Hockey League. In the playoffs, we went all the way to the game six of the Calder Cup finals. And he was unbelievable. The next year we were at camp in Calgary together. I don't want to say we got sent down on the same day, but we both got sent down. Year three, we were line mates for the, and it was like an anger with Marty. Yeah, I'm not going to be denied. And, And he got up. And then I got traded to Atlanta. In my fourth year, Marty was still in Calgary. And then at the end of that year, yeah, he got bought out by Calgary. And they they, they chose to move on. And he signed in Tampa. And the rest is history. So, but I mean, he's, he's if, if you don't know, uh, Marty's a great guy. Yeah, and he is very, very determined. You are, you are not going to tell Marty St. Louis he can't do something. And so, uh, he's, uh, I mean, you, you see where he is today. He's, he's going to be a successful coach. So, right. Yeah. Well, I just love that. I mean, I love that story for a lot of reasons. And it's, I mean, because you would think that somebody that can win the Hart Trophy, you know, like the best player in the world, like doesn't doesn't slip through the cracks at some level, you know, that, that, well, he that did. Is, but I know, he, but how? He, That's the thing. Like, I don't get it. Well, like, because there's the experts aren't experts. And, right. and, and so the other people don't determine your life. 
And then Marty proved that. And Michael Jordan got cut from high school basketball. And so you it's you you just have to believe in yourself, I guess. And right. and and so it's I mean, I was never a superstar and but I mean, I played with some and, and the lessons are around us, are all around us. And and it's up to us to to gravitate to them. Yeah, well, I love your three Ps because, I mean, I think that he, from, from anything I've heard about him, and you'd probably say, like, the passion, preparation, and persistence, I mean, that would that would be Marty St. Louis um, in a nutshell. And, uh, and kept the getting saint, better. The saint, he's a good man. Yeah. I heard there was a there was a mindset. I mean, I, I talked to Kevin Weeks about him, and and so Kevin was was in Tampa Bay when he sort of had his you know coming out party, I guess, for lack of better words, right? Like like big success at the NHL level, and uh, and there was a little bit of a in Kevin's words, you know, well, I should I'll, I'll be paraphrasing him, but like he need to he needed to believe that he that he was that guy, you know, like he he needed like there there was a there was a maturation process where. Where yeah, he he could be a great player at the NHL level, and he kind of watched that unfold. And um, to me, that's kind of fun too. I mean, obviously, what I do now on the mental performance side is because you know he he probably did have these tools and was a great minor leaguer, but had yet to become a great NHLer, and uh, and something had to shift for him on, on the psychological aspect for that to happen. Um, I would love to have him on as a guest and talk to him about that uh, or what he would what he would think. Uh, was the difference there, whether it was a coach or whether it was a personal belief system that that changed or something. But I I highly doubt it from one season to the next, like that is all of a sudden his skating improved that drastically or his, you know, his ability to play the game. Yeah, no, I would, if I had to, to make an, a, a round assumption of what went on, it was just he was very persistent in what he was about to accomplish and, and nobody was going to tell him no. And he just... I, I repeat myself, I was with him when we were very young. And, and so a lot has happened over the years. And, but in my short time with him, he was, it was just another example of a, of a motivated guy to, yeah. to want to get things done. And, and you're right. Not everybody goes on to win the heart trophy and, and all the, he deserves all the credit he gets. Yeah. Yeah, awesome story. And an undersized guy. I mean, he's 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 completely somebody. But he's not he's with. not undersized. That's what everybody like. He 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 can't control his height. But he was pound for pound one of the strongest guys I knew. Yeah, that's true. Some, it was yeah. unbelievable how strong he was, and that was his work ethic. And he always said, "I can't control my height." Yeah. And and his awesome never, legs were just supposed to be next level, right? Yeah, everything. Yeah, it was. He's a. The Saint, yeah, he's a good dude. Take a short break from the discussion to announce a lot of big things are going on with Up My Hockey right now. Uh, it's super exciting time for me. Uh, next season is already looking crazy. Uh, it's, well, crazy in a good way. Um, teams, pro teams and junior teams and uh, are, are interested in, in, in what is happening with Up My Hockey and how I can support their players and teams. And with this type of growth and with, with my work with, with the minor hockey teams, the amateur teams on the U18 side and the U15 side, uh, and with my work with the Silverbacks currently, there's, there's a lot going on. And, uh, and with there being a lot going on, I need help. And, uh, and it's a good problem to have, uh, except that it's, it's not the easiest thing to find amazing people. So I have talked about this on the show before. I haven't gone public with this yet. I haven't announced it on any of my social channels and I haven't, 
um, put an ad out or anything, but I am doing a soft intro that if you are of the growth mindset, if you believe in growth mindset, if you believe that skills can be developed, whether they're mental or physical, and if you believe with the proper support that people can grow and expand and evolve, and if you love this sport of hockey, and if you have a hockey playing environment, if you have played hockey at, at some type of level, preferably junior or above, and you're interested in getting into a new career and supporting the growth and development of, of athletes in this space, uh, and supporting me and working working hand in hand with me, then by all means, reach out. It doesn't have to be uh, a resume scenario. You can just be interested. You can be curious to what it looks like. But I do need uh, support. I do need to grow my team if I'm going to grow what up my hockey uh, can become. And I am looking for that diamond, the diamond that wants to shine and wants to grow within this space and uh, and wants to be a part of what up my hockey is. So if you know that person or if you are that person or if you think uh, you might have an idea of who that person is, by all means, reach out uh, on the social media channels I re- mentioned earlier, which is either on Facebook, on Messenger. I'm at Jason Padol and that's at Jason Padol on Instagram. I'm also um, on YouTube or you can get it hold of me on my, U- my uh, website, which is upmyhockey.com. Uh, there's a contact form there, or you can also email me at jason at upmyhockey.com if you feel like you would like to work with me on developing young athletes um, and working in the background and everything that happens here at my hockey. That would be fantastic, and I look forward to talking with you. Now back to my discussion with Nat Domicelli. So what made you jump jump over the, over the overseas there, across the pond? You, you had... Uh, you know, you you were in the NHL for a long time. Like you, once you once you made that jump, I guess it looks like in two thousand, uh, you never played another AHL game for three seasons or so. So you were you were in the yeah. NHL doing your thing. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, a lot had to do with the NHL lockout. Um, I was with the Minnesota Wild, and it was two thousand and two, and I knew that uh, we'd had meetings at the NHLPA, and there was a lot of talk about like 2004, 2005 is coming and we're probably going to miss a whole year of hockey here and you need to prepare yourself. And I got waived from Minnesota. I finished the year. I played with in the Houston Arrows in the American Hockey League. And and at that time, I, I made the decision. I was offered a two-year contract in Switzerland. And, and I was concerned about the lockout, to be honest. I, I didn't, the rumors were true and there wasn't going to be any hockey. And so I was offered a, a two-year or a one-year contract with an NHL team to stay for a year. But then I was concerned if, if I waited until the lockout, then all the superstars would have, would have come over to Europe and, and I could have been a tough spot. And so so I took the chance and I, I came over. I thought, okay, I'm going to play these two years and then we'll, we'll see where we are with with the NHL and post-lockout. And, and then my life changed. I, and I met my wife, Ludovica, and, and we were married in 2005. Um, and then 2000 into 2006 and then i made the decision okay i'm going to stay in switzerland i was comfortable i had a good role and then i ended up finishing my career in in switzerland i didn't come back to north america to play still here today yeah wow so yeah. you obviously, you obviously love the area love the love the league love the like you said your role you got back to scoring goals again consistently right which is something that you talked about earlier that you absolutely loved i know for me when i came over to germany it, that was a nice aspect too. I mean, I was sort of, I, I felt the need to reinvent my game. That's why I went over. I was like, I had to get reconnect to who I am and like the player that I am. And, 
And in my first three months over there, I was scoring a ton of goals again and feeling good about myself. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to sign here long term because this is a blast. You know, I'm enjoying myself. It's fun again. Yeah, it's it's great. There's a whole nother world over in Europe to play hockey. And, and I was like, I came to Switzerland. I came to the southern region uh, in Ticino here in Lugano. Um, I played for Ombre Piotta for five years and then I switched and I played the last six years for, for HC Lugano. And it's an Italian region speaking. And my wife is, is from Lugano. Both our children were born here. And then now this is home. Lugano is home for our family. And I retired in 2014. And, and then we had a family meeting and decided, okay, this is where we're going to raise our kids. Uh, and so you never know where life's going to take you. But uh, things worked out pretty good on the ch decision to come to Switzerland. And it's still, we, we love it over here. Well, you said before we chatted off camera there uh, that you you arrived even though you had some descent. You didn't have a passport, a Swiss pass. You were a, you that, were an yeah, import. that's correct. Yeah, I was right. an import. My my first uh, five seasons in the league, I played as an import. So what that means is in Switzerland, at the time it was four. Today it's six. But when I played, four players in the country could play with a different passport. Every other player on the team has to have a Swiss passport. So whether you're Canadian, from Finland, from Sweden, from the United States, if you don't have a Swiss passport, you're considered an import. Right. And so they would look for ex-NHLers, players that would come over that, that could help these teams compete. And then in, in 2009, after five years of marriage, um, I applied for the passport and, and I became Swiss. And I have a Swiss passport and, and then that opened doors and allowed me to play longer because I didn't count as one of those four players. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So for everyone listening, like that's that's a little bit of a golden ticket in some respects, uh, being able to – well, Swiss hockey's come a long way and German hockey's come a long way too. But like both of those leagues, generally speaking, like the, the lower-end players in the league would be German players. Like the imports are supposed to take the top roles, right? And then the German players come, come in or the Swiss players and then they fill the other roles. Now – like I said, the, the, the hockey in both those countries has elevated. But if you could find a North American NHLer of, of that type of pedigree that now has a Swiss passport, like, my goodness, you can almost play as, as, as long as you want. You know, that's a lot of those guys will play till they're almost 40 years old because it's um, it's it's an amazing thing for these teams to have when you're not burning an import card. So, um yeah, I mean, to your point, I'm just trying to elaborate on, on, on that aspect. I mean, you're getting that, that the Swiss passport helped the team and it probably lengthened your career, I would assume, over there as well. Yeah, it did. I mean, it was for sure as I got older, later in my 30s, it was, it was I probably could have played as an import, but I probably would have had to change countries and maybe would have had to go to a lower league. Right. But to play, to play as a Swiss player, it allowed me to play in the highest league in, until 38 years old. And then... And then it was enough. I I, I was I, I talked to the with my wife and our kids and we we that it was time to stop. But yeah. uh, I probably could have stretched it out if I. But it would have been just would have been uh, wouldn't have been fun for anybody. Probably myself or the team. Talk about the state of the game there now because I know that that was. Uh, well, it was it was a heck of a good league when when I was playing there. You mean. The uh, the German league had more imports. I think we were allowed twelve or thirteen. So, uh, 
I don't know how it would work. I mean, we, we did play against each other in some Spangler Cups and stuff like that. But, I mean, they're pretty parallel. But you said now with the more imports and also with what's happening with the war in, in Russia that a lot of these European players did, did come over. Like, is, is it's one of the one of the best leagues in Europe now, is it not? Yeah, our league is very, very competitive. It's very fast. Uh, Swiss, Swiss ice hockey has come a long way. Um, the Swiss players are, are just as good as some of the imports. It's the I, I would say it's very hard for an import player to come into our league and dominate the league now, as opposed to when it was um, 15 years ago. Um, German hockey has come a long way as well. They're very, very competitive. I would say their league is a little bit more physical than the Swiss league. I would say our league is much faster. Um, Sweden is very, very good hockey. Uh, Finland is very, very good hockey. I think in Sweden and Finland, you see a lot of younger players from the regions. Are, are moving into pro hockey sooner. You see a lot of NHL scouts spending a lot of time in Finland and Sweden because there's 17, 18 year olds playing in the men's game. Whereas in Switzerland, we don't have very many 17 or 18 year olds playing in the top league with the men. Um, but it's very, very comfortable for the players. It's come, um, especially the imports. We, we play 52 games. Our country is very small. Everything is on bus. There's no overnight trips. There's no plane rides. So, the ability to play a high-end country or high-end hockey in a, in a safe country in the world is very attractive for a lot of people. And yeah. we, ha we have a very, very good team in a very competitive league, and, and we're always searching for, for new players. We do a lot of time scouting. We're, we're watching a lot of hockey games, and we're always looking for that, that next player, the Swiss and, and imports. So well, and the salaries are super attractive too, you know, right? Like the, I mean, yeah, the, whole, yeah, the, the budgets, uh, the budgets have grown. I mean, we cannot compete with uh, an NHL budget, but, but we do have a very interesting budget. That's probably one of the most challenging parts of my job is, is the salary cap. That's interesting. Building the team based on, on the money that we can afford the players, knowing there's competition. Um, like you said, with the KHL, with Sweden, with Finland, and, and we're losing some players now to the NHL, which is actually the growth of Swiss ice hockey, where in the past, uh, not very many Swiss players were in the NHL, and now we're, we're over 10, and, and it's growing. I think in the next few years, you're going to see the entire Swiss national team will be playing in the NHL. So with, uh, Hockey Club Lugano does a very good job to develop their players. We, we had a young player, Brian Zanetti, who was drafted by the Philadelphia Flyers last year, who's now playing with the Peterborough Peets. Uh, Elvis Merzlikens was a youth prodigy from HC Lugano, who is now drafted, and he's one of the top goalies for the Columbus Blue Jackets. So, uh, it's, it, the HC Lugano is a very, very um, historic club in Switzerland. I'm lucky to to be a part of them. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know what? I, I we I can't get this interview, let this interview end without talking about your experience in the Olympics with that Swiss passport, which you uh, <laughs> told me about. Yeah. So you got your Swiss passport, and then which allowed you then to play nationally, uh, internationally for Switzerland. And you said you got an opportunity to play at 2010 in, in Vancouver. Let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, I did. It was uh, it was interesting, and I was, I was Ralph Kruger was our coach. And, and Ralph had talked to me about joining Switzerland at the Olympics. And at the time, I, ha I had a hard time because I played the World Juniors with Canada. But I never played with Canada in, in the World Championships or in pro hockey. And, and I spoke with the people at Hockey Canada, and they understood, and they knew about the choice. And so, so I accepted to play for Switzerland, and, I, and I'm glad I did. It, it was a great experience to play in Vancouver. 
I, I was nervous before we went in because we were in a group round with USA and with Canada and Norway. And, and I was concerned, uh, you know, are we going to embarrass ourselves here on the ice? Is this going to turn into a boomerang? But, but in the end, uh, the experience on the ice, I'm, I'm really proud of how we played. I mean, we, we went to a shootout against Canada, uh, which in the round Robin, uh, I was able to be one of the shooters in the penalty sh in the penalty shot. I didn't score, but I, I, I shot against Marty Brodeur and he kicked it away. Like it was some street hockey kid coming down on him. And, and Sidney Crosby scored for Canada and we, we ended up losing three, two. And then we lost to the Americans in, uh, in the quarterfinals. Whoa. So great memories, great memories, great, great teammates with Switzerland. And it was very proud. No kidding. Well, let's talk about that Canada game. My goodness. Like that's, yeah. I mean, name some of the players on the Canadian team. I remember like me, Niedermeyer was there again. Let's score the, or Sydney scored the golden goal that, I mean, again, was on that team. Um, yeah, they, well, they were stacked. They were the NHL. I mean, the, they had the all San Jose shark line with, uh, Marlowe Thornton and Heatley. Uh, I, I, I won't really again, Lynn Crosby, like you said, Corey Perry was on the team. Getzlaff was on the team on the defense. It was Pronger, Niedermeyer in net was Marty Brodeur. I mean, the, I don't want to, yeah, I, I'd have to check, but I mean, it, it was, they were the best players in the world. Two, so, two, you guys took those guys too. How did that, how, how, like, yeah, what was the game was, like? It was Ralph Kruger hockey. He just clogged up the middle and shut it down. And somehow it's, we scored late. Jonas Hillier was phenomenal. He was our goalie. He is, and he was with the Ducks at the time. And we got to 2-2 two, two, and, and then we got to overtime and then we got to a shootout. And yeah, we're, I, I don't know, Podsy, how we, how we got to a shootout against Canada and Vancouver, but we did. And yeah. then all of a sudden, I'm sitting on the bench, and you just get the shoulder tap, and you're shooting first, kid. And so, yeah, just, it's pretty lonely. You're standing at center ice there, and but yeah, you that those are the moments you you got like you talk about the preparation, and you just got to go back to to what you know. And how was it like before that game? Yeah, I know you said you were a little bit nervous, but like, did you feel like holy well, shit? Like, oh, no, it's. No, no. At the time, I, it was okay. Once the game started, you were fine. And to be honest with you, I mean, we didn't touch the puck a lot. We spent a lot of the game chasing the puck. So it, I don't remember a lot of scoring chances in that game. The first two games, actually, even against the United States, we spent a lot of time without the puck. And that, that was a big credit to Ralph and his staff. Uh, the entire team could check. And and by that time in my career, I had, I'd learned to check as well. And and we, we didn't touch the puck, but we were able to compete because we had good structure. So it was, it was a great experience. It was great. Uh, I always remember it. Oh, I guess that's pretty phenomenal. That's super cool. So let's, let's talk about, we we're, as these things do, uh, we're, we're, we're banging on an hour and 15 minutes here and I know it's late there, but I want to talk about for sure about the agenting thing. So you, you, you end up playing until you said 38 or was it 38. You said it was your last year. Yeah. Year yeah. Playing? 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So 38. And then you, you've been around hockey your whole life. It sounds like you knew you wanted to stay in it. And then you, you got into the agency side of things. So what, can we talk about that a little bit, that whole learning curve and what that was all about and what your job was? Yeah. I, I joined uh, Jerry Johansson from the, the sports corporation who was in Edmonton. And my official job title from 2014 till 2019, I was the director of European operations. And at the time, Jerry and his firm, 
dealt basically with players from Western Canada and there wasn't a big European operation. And so it was really attractive because it allowed me to, to live in Lugano and work from home. And, and it was kind of a white carpet where it allowed me to, to build it how I saw fit. And, and basically what it was is we needed to find European agencies and partnerships that we could help them take care of their NHL clients. So we found great partners in Finland. We found great partners in Sweden, uh, in the Czech Republic. Uh, and then I spent a lot of my time also in, in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland as myself. And, and we recruited numerous NHL players. And, and I did that up until 2019, until I became the GM in, in Lugano. And so as an agent, and I know like these, and they're called advisors, I guess, over here in North America, when they're at, uh, you know, they haven't been to the draft yet. Uh, what what are you what's the bill of sale like what's the bill of goods like what what separates would have separated you guys or when you're when you're recruiting somebody what are you offering these players that uh, that would make them want to go with you well in in western canada jerry johansson and sports corporation have been in the business for 30 years and and the the number one thing i learned from jerry is is your clients do most of your talking for you and so when he went on the website like jerry represented some of still does today but but he had carrie price as a client he had brent seabrook as a client ryan getzlaff was a client today braden point is a client josh morrissey is a client so when he goes into the home of the next 15 year old family and mom and dad he basically he says if you're not sure about who we are i'll give you the phone number of these fathers and and you can call them and and they basically they they speak about how their children were taken care of and and there's a lot of good agents out there uh, in the world of hockey there's a lot of bad agents but the good ones are the ones that have been doing this for 30 years and it was the same thing that that we sold when i spoke to the to the swedish families and the finnish families and and we just explained how the business works and what we do and if you believe what we believe, then then we can work together and we can help you. And like I said, we didn't we not everybody chose us, and we didn't choose every player. But our heart was in the right place. Jerry's heart's in the right place, and we're there to help the players. So it was a very fun job for me, to be honest with you, Jason. I really enjoyed it. Um, but when I was offered to work with Lugano again. It, I was back in the game and, and probably because it was Lugano and I, I had to say, yes, I had to take this job. Yeah, well, for sure. Uh, yeah. Fantastic spot where you're at right now. I, I, I'm just thinking about your, your, uh, the idea. And I don't, who was your agent back in the day? Like who did you have coming out of uh, Kamloops? I worked uh, with a lawyer in Edmonton. It was very small. He's passed now. And, and then I worked with, with Jerry's European partners, uh, to go over to Europe. Um, Brett Calligan was, was my agent, a former Edmonton Oiler and Brett Calligan and Ron Chipperfield and Gary Seigel were three, three men that that's created a company and, and Brett, um, Optima. Optima. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So yeah, small world, right? Yeah. And so Brett was my agent who, who took care of me during my time in Switzerland. Right. Yeah, I mean, you guys remember like, to your point, you know, I, because I ended up going with Mike Barnett, who, for those of you who um, don't know the landscape back then, he had Hasek and Gretzky, I should say first, and Jagger and Hall, and like, I mean, Barnett was one of the biggest names going at at the time, and 
And when he tapped me on the shoulder and wanted me to go to Edmonton Oilers game and, you know, hang out with them and wanted to represent me, it was, it was our, it was a done deal because of who he had. Right. It was, it was such a, it was such an ego thing to be wanted by him. Right. So I just said, yes. Um, I didn't ask the right questions though, really at the time. And I think, you know, for me looking back on that, uh, I needed a guy to be more involved with what was happening with me, right? Like the ups and downs and the sent down and, you know, the trades and, and he, you know, he, he was never rude or, or anything like that. Like I would never have anything bad about Mike, but he had a lot of guys and he had bigger fish to fry than me. Right. Like, I think I needed somebody that was smaller that could had had a little bit more attention um, to what was happening with me. And I, I just wonder that now, like, I, I think that such a relationship thing i would assume now right like is it is it more relationship driven the, the sport as opposed to um i don't know like the contracts yeah, like no. oh, let's talk to the business of the side of it like how, how do you think it is like where does the value come from for an agent to a player well the the what i would say about this is is you're 100 right is that you need to feel a connection with your agent um you you need to have a trust factor and it is a business and the agents, um, you need to have more than one client to create a business. And there's different chapters in your career. But like I said, it, it, the agent works for the player. The player doesn't work for the agent. And so it's the player's right to, to ask those questions that you brought up. And if you're at the point in your career that if like, you have to be careful because I was an agent and I understand and, and, and we worked really hard for our clients. And so if the player's ability is only the American Hockey League level, then it's not the agent's fault if the player's not in the NHL. Uh, it's, the, it's the agent's fault if the player phones the agent and he doesn't pick up the phone. But you need to be honest with your client. Uh, you need to explain to him why he's not in where he wants to be and then this is a process and keep working and and i think if you do that i think most of the the agents out there don't have a problem with their clients and, and vice versa uh, i think it's it's just communication is important and honesty is important and maybe this is inside hockey maybe you can't answer this uh, i have no idea i don't try and answer ask questions to get people in trouble but is there i, I just remember when i was with toronto gary Meehan had like almost half the team and and there was there was talk about leverage kind of right that he was able to kind of get players in certain areas or maybe even better contracts because you know because of the amount of guys that he had in a certain organization or whatever did have you did you ever experience any, anything like that where where an agent could have leverage on a team and and use potentially one of their star players against one of their prospects to help them out no i don't think so uh that may help in short term um you may you may see that uh, a team will invite a player to training camp that, that hasn't been picked to, but in the end, it's so competitive in today's world and, and the teams, I'm a general manager now and I have to deal with the agents of the players and there's so much money involved. The, the amount of winning isn't so important that I would say for our, I can answer for my team, we honestly try to make the best decision for our team every day, regardless of who the player or who the agent is. And I would probably be willing to guess that most general managers in the National Hockey League try to make the best decision every day for what's best for their hockey team, regardless of who the player is or who the agent is. 
I don't think there's there's much collusion in in this fact. I, I just think it's there's too much at stake for these teams. So I I would say I would say no to that question, Jason. Right. It is there, um, and you would know more about this, which is why I'm asking. Like as far as the value from the agent to the player when it comes to contractual negotiation, um, from a lot of people from the outside looking in, it, it it seems like some of these deals are almost done for you based on you know the competitive marketplace and the and the you know the, and the contracts that have been done and you know the analytics involved around where these numbers arrive at. Uh, first of all, is there much like does an agent do much for a player in that regard? One and and two, if it is a little bit more of an even playing ground, there is the value to the agent really in the relationship aspect of supporting them, whether it's in the preparation or or away from the rink, um, and and maybe talk about about that about that balance. Yeah, well, the 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 number one thing is is you you work for your player, and every player. Is- comfort and role on your team. So if you have a client that that wants to maximize his value in the marketplace, then you're going to have to process that client through different structures. And what I mean by that is, is at the NHL level now, there's arbitration after a few years where the player can file for arbitration. So those contracts are then decided by the judge, which are usually one or two year terms. So if your goal or the player's goal is to get the unrestricted free agency so he can maximize his value, then as an agent, you're obligated to listen and you work for the player. Now, I, there's not many teams that want to have their player arrive to unrestricted free agency at 27 or even 26 years old. And so that's why you're seeing the, these long contracts to tie in the superstars so they can buy years of unrestricted free agency. So to answer that, you work for the player. And, and your job is to, to listen to your client as an agent. And the GM's job is to build the best team he can with the money he has under the cap. And so where the conflict kind of comes in sometimes or where you see players hold out is, is just everybody's doing their job for the person they work for. And, and the agent's job is not to help the team get everybody on a deal. And, and the GM's job is not to give exactly what, what the agent wants. And so, and then there's big decisions that have to be made. Um, emotions are, have to be taken out. You cannot make decisions based on emotions in this game. You have a fan base. Um, people have to make decisions. Okay, you have a 28-year-old player who's an unrestricted free agent who's going to be a superstar. What do you do? What's best for your club? Do you do you hand over that mega extension because that's what the agent wants? Or do you walk away and risk to have an upset fan base? So that's the... That's the, the the reality of the business and the world we live in. Yeah, and everyone makes different arrives at different conclusions. Of course, you know I I, uh, I don't even know why I'm bringing this up because Daniel and Henrik both I mean are still involved with the Canucks and are and are centerpieces of that organization. They're both first ballot uh, you know, Hall of Famers. But I always thought that that last contract that they signed, like as a fan and from, from looking from the outside, like I didn't think that was like to the benefit of the team. You know, because now they're. They're not at their best anymore, right? It was more like legacy. It was a legacy contract to have them end their career there. And they they could have gotten really great value in that last year to move them out and bring some young people in. But, I mean, there's a 
I mean, maybe it was an emotional decision. Maybe thought it was a business decision just to keep fans in. Um, but there's all they, there is those dynamics, right? Like, how do we, how do we, how does this help our team, right? And sometimes it's not just on the ice. I guess is how some of these GMs are thinking about it too, right? Well, the, yeah, the, the general managers have owners, and and certain players deserve the opportunity to play their entire career. Um, you winning is very loyal to a lot of people. I mean, you've seen it in the past in the NHL teams that have won Stanley cups have been very loyal to their superstars and, and gave them very, very lucrative contracts. And then now they're, they're at the tail end of their careers and, and they're not the same player, but you're right. There's a fan base, there's ticket sales and these players identify with the, with the, with the organization. So it's, it's tricky, uh, but, but it's, uh, it's a fun business. How about the leverages of um, like some 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 areas? I mean, Detroit was kind of one of them for a long time that would get like the in quotes hometown discount or whatever, right? Where guys would want to play there to try and win. Uh, first of all, I don't think there's many guys that want to do that or are willing to do that. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it happens so rare. Uh, but also, isn't there a battle with the PA when it comes to that? Like they don't want players to sign contracts that they're, you know, maybe undervaluing themselves. And if that was the case, you said like the, the player, the agent works for the player. The, the agent can't love that either, I guess, right? So there, there is some some dynamics there. Can you, can you maybe talk about those scenarios when they arise? Well, sure. I think I, I, even myself, um, I went through a situation where I was offered a contract that was lower than the qualifying offer, but but it was a multi-year deal and it was guaranteed money. And and so so I took it and and i was comfortable and that's that's the situation where where i was happy with what they were offering and i was comfortable where i was so and and you see that all across the the landscape i mean people are comfortable certain places there are better where they want to live and and money is not the end all be all with some people some people it is so the agents want to push the marketplace and and some players want to push the marketplace because they want to do right uh, for the next guy up. And, and if you go into the history of hockey, I mean, Eric Lindros is the prime example that he should almost be able to collect a percentage of everybody's check in the NHL because of what he did for hockey. Uh, he, he is one of the number one players that pushed the envelope for what he believed in player salaries and it exploded. And Maybe share that so, story. What, what what did he do, and what 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 was he? What did he? Well, I mean, it's I don't have all the details. I've read a book about it. I mean, he was drafted uh, by the Quebec Nordiques, and he refused to go, and then he waited, um, and then he was traded technically twice: once to the New York Rangers, and then once to the Philadelphia Flyers, and it had to be settled by a judge, and ultimately the Flyers uh, were declared they had made the trade before, and so he went to the Flyers and. And he signed an enormous contract. I don't know the numbers. And and then Bob Goodenow, who was our NHLPA president at the time, Ian Pulver was was his assistant at the time, and explained and showed us graphs where Eric's contract was was record setting. And and I believe if we go back, it was it was in 1991 he was drafted, and then shortly after Alexander Daig was the first rounder. And now Alexander Daig said, well, you know, I want to big signing bonus and then boom he gets a big signing bonus and then you're getting into ed jovanovsky you're getting into these players and then that's ultimately what led to 
the lockout in 2004 where they put in a entry-level system to cap rookie salaries because rookies were getting multi-million dollar signing bonuses yeah that's crazy uh and it's definitely um still trailing other sports the, the, the thing do you think do you think the reason for that is is just strictly around the um like the additional revenue the external revenue from the tv contracts and 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 that those types of scenarios of why the nhl is farther behind the other uh, major sports well it, it's growing for sure uh if you look at when the inception of the entry level system came in, the, the floor, I believe, was in the 30s. Uh, maybe even, I don't know the numbers exactly, but but today where the floor is, I believe, is over $60 million and the cap is over $80 million. So it's going in the right direction. I don't think we're, you're ever going to be able to compare it to American football because it's it's not the number one sport in the world. But hockey is is growing and it, and it's still growing um the world cup is on now and, and soccer which is the number one sport in the world as far as the amount of people that play it and participation and, and where it is in the world but it it's still behind in north america compared but it, but it won't surprise me if soccer becomes a major major player in the next 10 years and television money and there's hearing rumors now that messi is coming over to the to America to play and so hockey's I don't it's going to be hard to catch baseball basketball and football but, but I think hockey's in a good place take one more short break here from the discussion with Nat Domicelli to a reminder for everyone here to understand what up my hockey is and what up my hockey can provide for your athlete or for your team or for your association uh, mental performance is the competitive advantage that teams are looking for competitive teams are looking for this is this is the secret sauce to allow you to get that 5 10 15 20% out of the individual players on your team this is this is new but it's not that new and it's catching on fast so if you are looking for support mental support personal development support for your players and you are involved in either a junior team or you're involved in a pro team somewhere and you do not have the support for your players by all means reach out to me and i'd be very interested in talking with you if you are the president of an association a minor hockey association one of the avenues that we are going to do next year here at up my hockey is we're going to support associations on a licensee basis so there is a suite of products that up my hockey either has or is developing when it comes to personal growth when it comes to mindset development when it comes to mastering mistakes when it comes to um, the process of development and owning your development when it comes to leadership when it comes to culture building there is a suite of products that are done for you that your member association members can use, whether it be your teams and your players or products for your for your parents as well. So if you would like to have a done for you program that you can purchase as a licensee uh, and, and licensee the um, the services or the products, then by all means, reach out to me as well. It's another way to work without my hockey. And you can still work with me as your mental performance coach. If you are a coach or a manager and you know you're going to have a team next year in the AA or AAA level, probably U15 and above is the sweet spot, then by all means, reach out. It's always best to plan ahead. Uh, we can either do that getting it leading into the playoffs for this year, or we could do that 
planning for next season, what that looks like. We usually do the Peak Potential Hockey Project over an eight-week period. For teams, we'll have uh, we'll have a week of content followed by a coaching call and a week of content followed by a coaching call, uh, and that's usually the best way to do that. But obviously, space is limited, and, um, and yeah, we should plan ahead. So if that's something that you're thinking about, by all means, reach out on upmyhockey.com. Find the contact form. Let me know the age group. Let me know what you're interested in doing, and we can have a conversation. We can get on a Zoom call and figure out how to best serve the needs of your players. So definitely love all the interest that is happening right now. Love that people are starting to understand the value of what this can do for not only your individual player, but also for the teams you are involved in or the associations. If you want to make a difference for your association, uh, mental performance uh, support is a great way to do that. So thank you again. Upmyhockey.com is where you find out what's happening with Upmyhockey, the latest. And um, I hope to hear from you soon. Now back to my conversation with Nat Domicelli. So what's the, what do you love about what you do right now? I, I I'd want to touch on on the GM aspect. You know, you said you, you couldn't say no to it when it arose. You know, even though you're you're happily successful in the in the agent world, but then you were offered uh, the opportunity to to manage a team and, and jumped at it. And what what uh, what was so appealing to you about that opportunity? Well, I was back in the game. Number one. Um, the agent business is great in you're parallel to the game, but you're not in the game A GM you're, you're with your team, uh, wins and losses, chasing the trophies. Um, it was Lugano. It's, uh, it's, it's my hometown now. It's my home team. And, and they, I was a volunteer in the youth section and I know all the people here. So when they, when they asked for help, I was more than willing and, it's challenging. Uh, nobody expected COVID to arrive on the world when it did shortly after, but uh, but that's behind us now. And it's it's interesting. It's it's an, it's a big big project. It's day to day. You're very very focused on what you're doing. There's a lot of things uh, that go on, but we have a great team. We have a great staff. I have a lot of people that support me, and it's challenging. Like uh, today is Monday, and in Switzerland, like today was a full, full day. It was seven o'clock in the morning in the office and meetings and then over to see the end of practice and then talk with my coach to where we are. We play this weekend. And then this afternoon I was in the hospital visiting patients before Christmas with our players, giving out gifts. And then I was in a meeting shortly after that back because I'm also the general manager of the junior team here as well. And uh, we had to discipline a player for making some mistakes on social media. So we had a parent meeting with mom and dad and the player to, to make them understand certain things can't go on social media. And, and then uh, that, that was the day. So that was today. What is the biggest, uh, what would you say the biggest challenges just overall? Maybe challenges is the wrong word, but like what is, what, what is uh, the thing that you have to be most aware of that as a GM that, um, that can potentially catch you if, if you're not, if you're not on top of things? Uh, Injuries, um, status of your team, who's playing well, who's not playing well, um, the marketplace. Uh, you can sign players at any time. There's there's no there's no draft. It's unrestricted free agency all the time. So if a player gets waived from the NHL or is in the American Hockey League that, that you want to pick up, you can pick up if if he's an import. Um, 
Culture is a huge factor that we deal with. We're in Switzerland. Um, there's four major languages in Switzerland. My dressing room consists of players born in the French region, the German region, the Italian region, plus imports. Um, managing the roster, managing is basically a lot of what my job is. Um, then you, you, everybody talks about contracts and the salary cap. Um, I mean, when it gets down to that, that's a, that's a separate part of the job where you're dealing with the agents and there's numbers involved and in, in you set your budget with your team and your staff. And that's, that's the nuts and bolts of black and white of building a hockey team. But then there's an, another human side that you deal with day to day that is, I guess, undervalued, I would say. And, and that's the a major challenge that we have here in Lugano and, and in Europe in general and is, is managing people and dealing with different cultures and personalities. Are you a guy that likes to be in the room and talking with with the guys and having having your own relationship with them? I'm I'm not in the dressing room a lot. I'm in the coach's office uh, probably daily. Uh, I check in with my coaches uh, whether it's in the morning to have a coffee or if it's after practice later in the day. Um, I believe that the players and the coaches they they handle the day to day business. It's not my job to tell the coach uh, who gets ice time and whatnot, and I bounce ideas off with my coaching staff. Uh, if there's major concerns in, in regards to a contract or uh, an off-ice problem that that they need to come see me, I have my office upstairs and, and the players are more than welcome to come in. And, and we do have meetings with players if if there's discipline issues or if there's uh, contract talks then with their agents. But on the day-to-day routine of the players, um, I would say I'm not in the dressing room. Uh, as much as the coaches are that's for sure gotcha and that's obviously by plan right that's that's sure yeah i mean you have to you have to respect the roles of everybody uh it's not that i'm not in the dressing room but that that's the coaches areas and the players have their lounge and the players dressing room and but um but i do know what's going on i will say that right um (laughs) It might be good just because you mentioned it and obviously we don't need to hear the player's name or maybe even what it was, but I mean, social media and with players is, is, uh, is a big deal, right? It, it follows them and it's something that is new for this generation about what is okay and what isn't okay. And the phones are with them all the time. Uh, how, is there some type of mandate or policy that you guys have or, or what is like, how do you teach these, these young guys, uh, what, what is okay and what isn't? Well, with our team, I mean, what we try to explain to our young players and even to our pros is, is they're public people. And when they're employed by Hockey Club Lugano, they represent not only themselves, but they represent Hockey Club Lugano as well. And so anything that they post um, is out there for the world to see. So we follow a simple rule. We have one rule. It's just don't do anything to embarrass yourself or the organization. And And if you do that, then then you don't have many problems. So the situation we had with the young player was very harmless and simple. Uh, He didn't do it on purpose. Uh, He was at a wedding. He was excited. And and someone took a picture and the people around him were were older than him. They were adults. They were were over 21 years old. They had cigarettes and they had alcohol around them. But he was in the picture. And, And so it wasn't a bad thing. But what we had to explain to them is that, you know, when we see this, and we know this, then we need to know why. And we need to explain to them, like, you didn't do anything wrong, but be careful because people can now assume that that 
you like to drink and smoke and that's not that's not relative to being a, a young athlete and so it was a harmless situation but it was it was cleared up pretty quick and he understood and and, and the best thing with social media is is just be careful yeah totally uh i was well maybe we won't go there that or maybe we can. I don't know. That, that, do you know anything <laughs> about that Mitchell Miller scenario? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear you. The... Mit- Mitchell Miller. I think that's his name. Uh, so, I do, so the, I do know. I followed it on the news lately. Else, is the player that was um, signed recently by the Bruins, correct? Yeah, and then his contract was reneged on or whatever by the Bruins uh, because of um, his history and his past. Uh I just, I mean, again, I don't, I don't know. The, the thing is, I'd like to know more about. I mean, the, the way the way it was covered, um, it's just I don't know when a guy like when a fourteen year old kid does it, isn't he a, like when you're not allowed a second chance, you know? And and uh, and then again, not saying anything about what he did was right. I don't think anyone has to say that. You I mean I, I think we all understand that what happened when he was 14, 13 years old is not okay, and and and. And there's a lot of things that happen when we're younger at any stretch in our lives that we do that maybe isn't okay. I just w- was wondering like where your stance is on that or like maybe that's something why I'm bringing it up now is because your social media scenario was nothing nothing near like like Mitchell Miller. But I mean, this can follow players. Like, I mean, right or wrong, stuff follows players and it can be for a long time. Um, it's just it's just interesting how this is, how our world is, is reacting to some of these things. Uh, especially with minors like that's the thing with me is like he's a minor like i just don't understand how the nhl is getting involved and well going on with that well i would say this jason number one racism's wrong and it has no place in 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 any walk of society let alone hockey so so that's my opinion on that um what i would say to young people now is is you social media is public and be careful and in this situation, I mean, the there's you have to think of the victim too. Yeah. And there's two sides to every coin, and it's uh, it's a delicate, delicate situation. And and being a hockey player or being special in a sport does not give you the right to to act different or treat anybody bad. And and so there's repercussions for our actions. No, hundred percent. I mean, I yeah, I don't want, I don't want to, because again, I, I think it matters what type of person he is now. I think that's very relevant to the conversation. Um, I, and I and I can't speak for that, nor can I vouch for that. Uh, but it just seems like in a team of in a league of thirty-two teams, if the Boston Bruins, like the Boston Bruins, knew. I mean, I assume, right? They have to, like, they, they this is like every, like I knew. So how couldn't the Boston Bruins know the story? And then for them, like to be kind of bullied into having it not be okay for them to want to sign this guy, it just seems like if somebody wants to, like the kid should be allowed to have an opportunity. But I mean, again, I'm not the I'm not the GM. I can totally understand why GMs wouldn't want to do it, and they wouldn't even go near it, right? I could totally get that. But if the G, if the Boston Bruins did decide to, um, I think now it's getting pretty unfair to to that athlete at some point. Don't sign him in the first place, then. You know, like just don't even go there. Well, it's. I mean, there's there was an argument. They did sign him, and then and then they they canceled the contract, and now it's in the hands of the NHLPA. Um, I'm not previous to the details about what happened. 
yeah. the I would just say that in today's world, the, we we have owners and we work for franchises that that are. It's very very important to keep the image of the franchise, and and there's a lot of great hockey players in the world that don't have any conflict associated with them. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Right. Yeah. And and so sure. it becomes. Uh, I'm not here to judge whether it was right or wrong, but it's some people don't want to put themselves in that situation. Yeah. But um, my advice on that situation with this boy, I, I don't know the situation personally, is, is is that you have to think about the victim. And I think when the victim comes out and says, I'm good and I'm okay, and he apologized and this guy can move on with his life, then I, then I think it will it will solve itself. But what i've what i've read in the paper like everybody else it's it's not at that point yet right yeah no fair enough that's uh that's a good angle uh for sure and yeah, i didn't obviously didn't want to start uh this didn't didn't think we'd be talking about mitch marner or mitchell mitch marner my god um what texas name now i'm drawing a blank uh anyways i can't remember the name of the kid now but yes it is such a wild scenario and, and why we've why we've I mean, it's been topic of our home, and I think it's been topic of a lot of homes, is because yeah, like these decisions, uh, they they can follow you, you know, for sure. And to be aware of what you're doing with your device, and and you know, in in high school, even whether, you know, whether you're 14 or 15, I mean, my goodness, let's uh, let's make sure that we're we're being cognizant of what's going on, and and to the best of our ability, because uh, you know, things follow you. So. Uh, Anyways, any anywhere? How should we how should we wrap this one up? What? Uh, how are you guys looking this year? As far as the, yeah, the, it's it's uh, it's tight. Um, it's a competitive league. There's 14 teams in the league. Um, we're five points from second, but we're also eight points from last, which is it's very very tight. We've played 23 games. We play 52 in our season. We have a long way to go. Right. Uh, but I expect us to be a playoff team again this year. And keep knocking on the door, but uh, I guess you we... have. Uh, do you have the relegation scenario? Like, if you did finish bottom one or two, that you go down to the second league? Does there that is re there is relegation in Switzerland? The uh, thirteenth and fourteenth playing the best of seven, and then the loser of that plays the winner of the B league. So, um, there is an A league and a B league that the leagues are open, so teams are are wanting to come up to the to the major league. Oh, interesting. So the, I like the way that en ends, though. So the, the champion of the B isn't automatically in. They still have to beat the last place team of the A to, to come up to the next. The next. Correct. Year. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. When's the last time that's that's they've had a flip flop? Uh, it's been a long time. They actually promoted two teams during COVID. The winner of the B automatically moved up because usually our league is a twelve team league. Yeah. So the last two years, because of COVID, they've they've promoted uh, the two time champions. So this is the first year that it's back to the relegation. Gotcha. Yeah. And if you win, is there is there is the Spangler where, where people come together from the different leagues to play each other? Is, yes, is the Spangler Cup will be starting here in two weeks in, in Davos, Switzerland. Big tournament in uh, in Switzerland. So the, our league stops from the twenty third of December until the second of January to allow Davos to host the Spangler Cup. So all of our teams are on break. And this year, Omri Piotta is another team that will be playing from Switzerland. I believe there's a team from Finland. There's a team from Sweden. Team Canada is putting in a representation as they do every year. 
Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be another exciting term. We're waiting in these days for team Canada to announce the roster, but gotcha. uh, it's a big, big tournament. When I played back, it was more of a festival tournament. It was a lot of fun. We played five games in six days and it was pretty, pretty relaxed. Now it's, it's a tournament that's scouted by, by NHL scouts and European scouts, because uh, they're, they're, it's pretty competitive. Right. And that is the champion of the season before, right? The, the, the... No, no, no. The Spengler Cup is just a traditional tournament that's hosted by DeVos every year. And they just invite random teams from around Europe plus Team Canada every year. Oh, interesting. So it's just a Christmas tournament. Gotcha. So they try to identify, I would assume, good teams in the other leagues that, that, that they'll come and, and, and compete. Yeah, correct. Correct. It is, uh, I would say, for, for all hockey fans around the world, it is a bucket list event. From okay. the 26th of December until January 1st, it is a hockey lover's dream and skiing in the mountains and nightlife. It is, uh, it's a good time. That's cool. Well, maybe we'll end off with the World Juniors. So, I mean, we, we kind of barely dashed on it, but we did win a gold medal there in 96 together. Um, you, you mentioned that you played and then had to talk with Hockey Canada to, to represent Switzerland in, in the Olympics. Is is the World Junior something that uh, that you still get a smile on and, and, and look forward to watching over, over the holidays? Even though Yeah, I mean, it's a great tournament. It's uh, it's definitely a memory. I mean, you and I, we, we have that memory, right? Uh you can still remember 1996 in Boston. I mean, we're we're just going down memory lane here, but uh, something they can never take away from us: World Juniors. Yeah. We won gold medal. <laughs> you saved us, Podsy, in the semifinal against Russia, scoring that big goal. Nobody that. knows, but you did. If we <laughs> you don't score there, where well, there's no finals. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, what a, what a great memory for sure, as you say, and it and it is something that you, I mean, I'm attached to it all the time. I. I I have my ring in my safe. Like I, 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 I usually bring it out uh, during the tournament, and I'll wear it for the six days of the tournament just to kind of reconnect to it and everything else, and 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 support the boys. Uh, I guess you must have a different uh, allegiance. Maybe, maybe allegiance is the wrong word, but if you probably have kids from your junior team that are representing Switzerland at the tournament yourself, right? Is it, yeah, is we will. We'll have two players from from Lugano representing this year. How fun uh, is that with Team Switzerland? So they're excited. Um, we have actually other uh, two other boys that are playing in Lugano that were born in Latvia uh, that are going to be going over with Team Latvia. So, so we're uh, we're involved as well this year with uh, from Lugano. So we're excited. That's cool. So you're well represented. Is that a feeder system then? Like, do you try and get players from your junior team to play on the big club? Is that, is that part of the program? Yes, it's 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 our lifeline. Uh, it's the identity of the club. We try to have at least. Uh, I'd say 20, 30% of the, the boys on the team come, come from the local region. Mm. We're very proud of that. We have a, every team in Switzerland has a, a youth program all the way down to, to learn to skate. Both my children, my oldest is 16, my youngest is 13. They both started in Lugano in learn to skate, and now they're, they're up, and next year they'll be starting junior hockey, my oldest. So it's that's the... The natural progression. The the kids in Lugano dream about playing for the first team. That's cool. Can your yeah. son shoot the puck like you did? He's a player. He's a player. He he's got the work ethic down, and he likes to score goals. They both do. They both play forward. They're they're right handed though, Podzia. So I don't know what's going on. I was a lefty. 
Yeah, that's right. I'll have to yeah. show them. I'll show them yeah. to pull and shoot. Yeah, they're good kids. That's awesome. Well, great, man. It was awesome catching up. I know it's late there. We should have ended this a while ago, but there's so much to talk about. And, and yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, great thing you're doing there, Jason, with uh, with up my hockey, and it's uh, it's a privilege to be able to connect and and be on your show. So all the best. Merry Christmas. Yeah, man. Merry Christmas to you. Yeah, Merry Christmas to everybody back in Canada. Listen and enjoy the podcast and uh, enjoy the World Juniors. Thank you for listening to that conversation with Nat. It was awesome to have you here with us today for almost two hours of uh, of back and forth between me and an old friend. I have always enjoyed Nat um, from the moment I met him the first time to our first days as pro and meeting for dinner, uh, either after the game or for a beer or whatever. Uh, Nat and I always always seem to get along and always seem to hit it off. And uh, beautiful part about being one of the guys from back, you know, 20, 25 years ago is that we are able to to sort of pick up exactly where we left off and, and had another great conversation. So love what Nat, what uh, Nat's doing, what he's a part of there. Um, I'm sure Lugano is uh, is better for him uh, to be a part of that scenario. And, and I'm really happy that he was able to share all of his wisdom over the past, my goodness, 25 years of, of professional hockey, not only in the as a player and, and, and finding his way around the NHL, uh, being prolific in the, in the minors then over and, and being such a, such a player at the, uh, at the international level. It was, it was awesome to be able to hear from him and what it takes to be an agent and also what he's, what he's dealing with now on the day to day as a, as a general manager. So Nat, if you are listening to this, um, I appreciate you, pal. Uh, totally appreciate you, and and I and I thank you for being on with uh, with us there. I mean, geez, almost all the way up to eleven o'clock your time after a long day. So, um, I know your time's valuable, and and uh, and very grateful that you chose to spend it here with with me and my uh, and my platform here and my audience at Up My Hockey. So, um, yeah, lots to learn from that one. I I look forward to uh, to further discussions with Nat and um, and potentially maybe helping out their team. Who knows what the what the what this all looks like down the road but uh i know i know that what what swiss hockey has going on right now is pretty special and their their development model is pretty special that was one question that i didn't get to ask him is what is what they actually do there on the junior uh, not junior but actually from the minor hockey side what their development uh, program looks like because they are starting to produce hockey players there so, uh, hockey is the number one sport in uh, in Switzerland, and they're starting to put out a, a lot of talent from from that scenario, from that uh, from that area of the world. So maybe that's part two of our conversation. We'll get into the development aspect more. But um, yes, as always, lots of lessons learned, lots of great stuff in, in this scenario. And I, I wrote down here on my piece of paper: passion plus pressure. Pro- plus preparation plus persistence equals success. So that was an awesome takeaway from that. So maybe we'll leave you with that. Until next time, play hard.